Tuesday, April 4th, 2023. I'd like to thank again Secretary Morowitz for his work to refine the processes of these meetings as we go back to in-person meetings with hybrid opportunities for public comment. With that, uh, Secretary Morowitz, would you please call the roll? Sure. Uh, Commissioner Christian, welcome. Present. Commissioner Chung. Present. Commissioner Guillermo. Present. Commissioner Bernal. Present. Commissioner Chow. Present. Commissioner Dorado. Present. And Commissioner Green. Present. And a hearty welcome back to Commissioner Susan Christian. We're so happy to see you and to have you back with your valuable experience and perspective. Uh, great to see you. Thank you, President Bernal. It's great to be back. All right, next we'll uh, have Commissioner Chow offer the Ramaytush Ohlone Land Acknowledgement. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> it's my privilege to uh, give the land acknowledgement. The San Francisco Health Commission acknowledges that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramaytush Ohlone, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land, and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramatush Ohlone have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland, we wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatush Ohlone community and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Chow. Our next item is approval of the minutes of the Health Commission meeting of March 21st, 2023. Commissioners, you have before you the minutes. If there are no amendments, do we have a motion to approve? Motion to approve. Second. All right, uh, Secretary Morowitz, do we have public comment on this item? Yes, um, folks online, if you'd like to make comment on this item, item two, please press star three. Um, moderator, please um, unmute the first caller. Oh, I'm sorry, I saw a hand up. I do see a hand. Here, I'm gonna unmute that person. Caller, are you there? Uh, yeah, it took a while, uh, Mark, Patrick, when I saw my code for today is YY. I'm, All right, please, I'm, please begin. I'm grateful Mr. Morowitz included in these minutes my written testimony congratulating Commissioner Bernal on his re-election as commission president. I testified that Commissioner Bernal and the full commission should take action on Laguna Honda's as Laguna Honda's governing body to direct Roland Pickens to submit a written waiver request to CMS slash CDPH for an exemption to CMS's two patients per room rule asking you work closely with the city attorney's office to make sure that a written waiver request is submitted quickly to CMS CDPH. I've provided you with information on 42 CFR section 483.90 
parenthetically E, parenthetically 3, parenthetically Roman numeral 2, dated March 3rd, 2023, which provides that survey agencies, meaning CDPH, may permit and grant a variation on the patients per room rule when facilities request in writing an exemption request that the variation to section 483.90E1 Roman numeral one will not adversely affect residents' health and safety. Given San Francisco's severe shortage of skilled nursing facility beds, are your, uh, excuse me, I urge you again to do, quote, everything you can, end quote, to seek a written waiver to save Laguna Honda's 120 beds. Please do so rapidly. Thank you. Thank you, caller. Uh, that is the only public comment for this item. All right. Commissioners, any comments or questions? Seeing none. Um, Secretary Moritz, uh, all those in favor of approving the minutes, uh, say aye. 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 Opposed? All right, the minutes are approved. Our next item is general public comment. Secretary Moritz. Uh, oh, yes, I have a statement to read, sorry. For each item, members of the public will have an opportunity to make comment for up to three minutes. The public comment process is designed to invite input and feedback from individuals in the community. However, the process does not allow questions to be answered in the meeting or for members of the public to engage in back and forth conversation with commissioners. The commissioners do consider comments from the members of the public when discussing an item and making requests to the DPH. Please note that each individual is allowed one opportunity to speak per agenda item. Individuals may not return more than once to read statements from other individuals unable to attend the meeting. Written public comment may be sent to the Health Commission at the following email address, health.commission.dph at sfdph.org. If you wish to spell your name for the minutes, you may do so during your verbal comments without taking your allotted time. Please note that city policies along with federal, state, and local law prohibit discriminatory or harassing conduct against city employees and others during public meetings and will not be tolerated. We will first take public comment from individuals attending the meeting in person. We will then take remote public comment from individuals who have received an accommodation for a disability. I've given each of these individuals a code to speak when they begin their comments to prevent others from speaking during this time. Finally, we will hear remote public comment from all other individuals. There will be a time limit of 20 minutes on the total amount of remote public comment that can be heard on each item from individuals who have not received an accommodation for disability. Because of the new re uh, remote public comment procedures recommended by the Office of the City Administrator and City, Minis uh, City Attorney's Office, please do not raise your hand to make remote public comment on an item until your category is called. All right, so um, there are two uh, folks who have put in a request for in-person before we get a remote. Yes, thank you. I've forgotten how much I like holding in my hands these public comment forms, so thank you to those who filled them out. Uh, first, we have Billy Jean Wall. And folks uh, who are in the room, I have a timer. When, the, when I say time, please know your time is up and finish your statement. Okay, very good. Welcome. Uh, good afternoon, uh, members of the commission. Uh, my name is Billy Jean Wall. I have been a member of the Warm Water Exercise Program at Davies Hospital for well over 10 years. To enroll in the program, each class member had to fill out an application and attach a completed medical form signed by our primary care physician 
return it to the hospital and uh, wait until an opening in a class became available for us to um, go ahead and start attending the classes. Um, we were very, very lucky because um, the classes were so very structured. They were taught by um, incredible instructors who were very skilled and well-learned and who had our best interests at heart and really wanted to improve our quality of life. And um, I just want to say how much I actually miss that program. I've noticed how much I personally have deteriorated since that program has, has um, come to a halt. Um, since the program was discontinuing, I am noticing that my mind and body are deteriorating in many different ways. My muscle tone is weaker. My skin quality has changed. My flexibility is rigid. Arthritis in um, my hands and fingers are very painful. I'm starting to have fingers that look like my mother's, which is really not something that I want. Um, by, um, I have developed trigger finger in both of my hands. My gait has changed. I'm falling a lot. I have uh, dislocated my shoulder. I dislocated my hip. I've had four epidurals. I've had many bouts of Botox injections for cervical dystonia in my neck. I am absolutely certain, and my doctors as well, had I been able to continue doing that program, I probably wouldn't have had to have those procedures done. Um, in addition, my fibromyalgia flares are more frequent. They are worse. Uh, my brain fog is worse. I, con I can't concentrate. Um, everything is more prevalent. Uh, if I don't write things down, I forget them. And sometimes I even write down the wrong information. It's, uh, I just see myself losing all the ground that I had gained from that program. And it's, it's very disturbing. I have felt more isolated. I'm more depressed. Um, I have been taking more medication, which is not something that I'd like to like doing. Um, the warm water exercise program was the best medicine I could ever have. And I wish to thank you for your careful consideration in making a prop Q hearing for this. Thank you very much. Thank you for your comment. Next, we have Colette Hughes. San Francisco. My name is Colette Hughes. Per physician's orders, I participated in the CPMC outpatient community program for 20 years. 
Without this program, the neuropathic pain worsens, I become less mobile, and tremors and spasms increase. Like many disabled people, I cannot tolerate land-based physical therapy or strength exercises. I, only in the pool. That's the only place I can do it. To participate in the program, I was required to be cleared medically by my physician and release confidential health care information, CPMC. I had orders. I still do. doesn't matter if you can't go to a place. I agreed to follow all of the rules of CPMC program, including checking in for attendance at the assigned time, respecting the privacy of all in the clinical space, not entering the therapy pool unless the therapist was present, informing the therapist of any changes in my condition, and following exercise therapy instructions during the group sessions and whatever we had to do, whether it was a clinical space or whatever, we followed those instructions. Individual assessment of pain and function occurred at every session. No unorganized, non-medical, open to the public, recreational use of the pool, such as free swimming, happened as represented by CPMC during this process. We were all in a special medical pool and receiving instruction from CPMC clinical staff. When CPMC did not reopen the pool for a few months in 222, the CMPC low-cost program was not reopened. Instead, the same type of warm pool, small group exercise classes were offered but only to people needing them on a short-term basis who had the right insurance and could afford the co-payments. And they were called therapeutic procedures for which they billed. The small group sessions were therapeutic and medical for the non-community pool patients. It was therapy for us as well. It was therapy for us as well. Medical sleight of hand is dangerous. I attest to this from my own experience in both sets of classes. The Health Commission needs to schedule a Prop Q hearing on the closing of San Francisco's only hospital-based aquatics program which served elders and people with disabilities like me for decades. I think now of the people who were at the pack pool who were thrown out of there because they were told they had to move to Davies, which they went. They were transferred and they went. And some of them were very comfortable because it was new and they were fragile many very old at that time. They went to Davies and what happened? They were told goodbye, goodbye, and goodbye without a reason. There is no justification for this. This has to be really carefully vetted. We need a public hearing. Please have a Prop Q hearing without delay. Thank you so very much. Thank you for your comment. Secretary Morowitz, do we have anyone on the line who's requesting accommodation? Uh, we do. So, um, folks, I gave accommodations to two people, and I see um, many more hands than that. So, I'm going to reiterate: if you have received, if you have not received accommodation from me personally by emailing or calling, please put your hand down by pressing star three. Only those folks at this point, right now, who have received accommodation can speak. Um, Jeanette, go ahead and try to unmute these folks, and then I'll ask them. The folks who have accommodation have a two-letter code. And as they begin their statement, they will start with that code, and that's how we'll know that they've gotten accommodation. This is um, a procedure that has been passed down to us from the city administrator's office. So I know it's a bit arduous, but this is what we're doing. So Jeanette, go ahead and start the first um, caller, see if they have a code. Uh, Dr. Palmer, code WW. Great, thank you. Begin, uh, Mrs. Uh, Dr. Palmer, you've got three minutes. Yeah, I, as a uh, community geriatrician and family physician, I'm calling to advocate for uh, Proposition Q hearing for the uh, Davies Warm Pool group 
uh, program. Um, it it uh, the CPM and Sutter told the city attorney um, some kind of crap that led the city attorney to conclude that these were not uh, that the program does not constitute an elimination or the substantial reduction of clinical services and therefore does not trigger Proposition Q's notice requirement. This is blatantly untrue. These are clinical services. There is only one pool. Uh, CPMC Sutter sh shut down their other pool in 2017. The low-cost group participants have to supply the same type of medical information that people that are short-term participants who pay with major medical insurance supply. Furthermore, CPMC Davies provides the identical service on a short-term group basis when approved and paid by medical insurance and billed for it as a therapeutic procedure. Therefore, CPMC Sutter is trying to get out of giving these services because they don't generate the revenue, not because they're not clinical. And this is de detrimental to the community. These are low cost services that are needed by the community. And CPMC Sutter is supposed to be a nonprofit community-based organization. Please look at the facts and schedule a Proposition 2 hearing. Thank you. Thank you, caller. Jeanette, please unmute the next person. Yeah, it's WW, a.k.a. Patrick. Today's written director's report doesn't mention Laguna Honda. This testimony presents historical information about... Call, the pardon the interruption, but um, if you have a comment on the director's report, that would be a public comment during the director's report. General no, no, public no, no, comments no. for items that do not appear on the agenda. Commissioner, this is not about the director's report which does not mention Laguna Honda. So this is different testimony. Start my three minutes over, Mr. Morowitz, please. How would you like to proceed, Commissioner? Let it go ahead. Okay, uh, go ahead, Mr. Manichel. Across the 12-state survey inspection since Laguna Honda's sexual abuse scandal in July 2019, LHH has received 138 citations for violation of 78 separate patient care-related updates, many times each, plus an additional 20 KPEGS violations for physical plant facility deficiencies, all across the past three, three years and four months. The root cause analysis report identified 63 root causes requiring 454 corrective actions. Add in 123 substandard care violations uncovered during Laguna Honda's first mock survey in June 2020. That totals 261 violations of federal regulations suggesting severe problems with regulatory compliance to provide quality of care safely to Laguna Honda's vulnerable residents. On March 17th, LHH received another 23 more deficiencies, 
if we all turned always this way, we're going to have to typically uh, was in substantial compliance with CMS regulations and routinely pass state inspections with few, if any, regulatory violations. What is new is the recent massive mismanagement of LHH. I want to add my voice to the previous two callers calling for a Prop 2 hearing on closure of the warm pool. My mother, for years, went to aqua therapy in Racine, Wisconsin. And I know how uh, important it is for patients with severe arthritis to receive that therapeutic intervention. You must hold a prop two hearing on this and not ditch your responsibility to make CCMC continue to provide this vital service to San Franciscans who sorely, no pun intended, need it. Thank you. Thank you, caller. All right, so um, there were only two folks who had accommodation. Um, uh, anyone else who would like to make remote public comment, you may do so now by pressing star three to raise your hand, and we'll move into a 20-minute time. Um, limit for the, uh, the overall of these comments. Jeanette, I'm hoping you're, you kept track of the folks who already commented so we can go to other folks who've raised their hand and um, let's begin with the first person. Caller, are you there? Oh, sorry. Yes. Are you there? Can you hear me? Uh, yes, uh, please begin. You've got three minutes. Okay, thank you very much. Hello, commissioners. Uh, my name is Norm Begelman. I'm a long-time resident of San Francisco and a uh, member of the Great Panthers. And I want to urge you to stop shipping wireless San Franciscans out of Coos County. And also, don't let CPMC close their warm pool programs for elders we have. Thank you very much. All right, uh, please unmute the next caller. Is there anyone? Let's see. Oh, no more callers. Okay, great. That was the only other hand commissioners for general public comment. All right. Thank you to members of the public who called in and came to the meeting. Uh, our next item is a discussion item director's report. For this, we have uh, Dr. Grant Colfax, Director of Health. Dr. Colfax, Director Colfax. Good afternoon, commissioners. Grant Colfax, Director of Health. Have an extensive director's report here that I will go through. The first item is a non-written item. It's a Laguna Honda update. Just wanted to, again, emphasize uh, that the Department of Public Health remains fully committed to CMS recertification and the long-term stability of Laguna Honda for residents and their family families. As we shared during the last commission meeting, as Mr. Pickens shared, the second CMS 90-day monitoring survey made clear the positive changes taking place at Laguna Honda and affirmed that we are indeed on the path to recertification. As an example, during the first 90-day monitoring survey, we received a total of 124 deficiencies. The second 90-day monitoring survey saw a significant decrease in findings with an anticipated total of 20 three preliminary deficiencies. 
In addition, Laguna Honda staff and leadership also submitted all 77 March deliverables due for the CMS approved action plan. This comes after successfully completing all 126 January milestones and 133 February milestones. As we celebrate improvement, we also recognize that there is still much work to complete before we are ready to apply for recertification. And in that regard, over the coming weeks and months, we will continue to complete all action plan milestones, prepare the facility for the next monitoring survey, and complete the improvement work needed in preparation to apply for recertification. I would like to thank the hardworking staff and our partners at the local, state, and federal level levels, our partnership with the unions, as well as, of course, Laguna Honda residents and their families. Next item, and this is now moving on to the written uh, part of the report. This is an update on San Francisco's five-year financial projection and additional budget instructions. On Friday, March 31st, the Mayor's Office, Controller's Office, and the Office of the Budget and Legislative Analysts issued an update to the five-year financial projection, unfortunately reporting a worsening of the two-year deficit. The driving factors around the increased deficit compared to the December 2022 report includes lower than expected revenue projections compared to the prior forecast, as well as increased costs related to, health, to employee health and pensions. In addition, as the city is in active labor negotiations with the police and firefighters unions and with the in-home support services independent providers union, and the outcome of these negotiations will impact the projection. Furthermore, there are numerous pending or proposed policy decisions with fiscal impact, including addressing the structural staffing shortages in the police department, annualizing the public works street cleaning supplemental, heard and pending approval by the Board of Supervisors, maintaining the current level of community ambassadors, backfilling the loss of one-time state funds to maintain current shelter operations, and several other appropriations for new program initiatives pending at the board. With this news, Mayor Breed issued an instruction on Thursday, March 30th, requesting departments propose additional options to reduce additional general fund support, equivalent to at least another 5% each year by April 7th. For the health department, a 5% reduction represents approximately 50 million of savings in its annual budget. Given the magnitude of this request, the mayor's office has agreed to allow DPH to submit its, its proposal after the April 18th health commission. While department staff will begin working on developing a plan to meet the instructions and will bring back additional proposals to health commission for its review and approval. It's just an update on a very challenging, uh, even more challenging, I should say, budget environment uh, that, again, we will update you and the public on here in this room on April 18th. Next item is launching the EPIC Welcome at DPH. Next week, DPH will launch EPIC's Welcome Solution. Welcome will help our patients prepare for their visits with us. Patients will receive text messages reminding them to prepare and check in for their appointments via MyChart, the EPIC platform, which allows patients and their designated family members to seek their medical records and messages and, and, mes and message their care team. If documentation is required upon arrival at one of our clinics, patients will use iPads to review and electronically sign documents as needed. Welcome lands first in our primary care clinics and over the next several months will launch our hospital and it will launch in our hospital and specialty clinic settings. Welcome will be available in six languages. Next item is 
an update with regard to Black Health Wellness and Empowerment Forum. On March 29th, the DPH Office of Health Equity hosted a community forum to present recent findings from the Office of Health Equity funded study as part of a priority setting process for the black community. The study sought to understand what San Francisco's elder black African-American population believe contributes to a vibrant and successful way of life. This model, this is a model based on strengths rather than deficits in response to input from community members and organizations. The study defined which shared aspects of these elders' lifestyles contributed to their joy and contentment, as well as explored how black African-Americans have been able to maintain their joy despite adversities faced because of racism and poverty. After the presentation, attendees had the opportunity to discuss the findings and to recommend initiatives and activities to promote black joy to improve health outcomes for black San Franciscans. Next item is ZSFG experiences and mitigates impacts of prolonged commercial power outage. Like much of the Bay Area last week, actually it wasn't last week, it was March 21st and 22nd, um, the hospital was significantly impacted by extreme weather on those dates. As the city's largest primary care facility and the only level one trauma center serving San Francisco and Northern San Mateo, it is critical that the hospital remain operational for trauma and urgent care, even when it is impacted by emergencies such as storm-related power outages. A series of power outages that began on the late afternoon of Tuesday, March 21st, caused systemic problems throughout the entire campus. Most significantly, Building 25, the main hospital where, emer where emergency services, operating rooms, ICU, NICU, and family care departments are located began running out of generator power that evening after the power went out, as did Building 5, where pediatric, urgent care, cardiology, and many of our outpatient services are located. ZSFG successfully mitigated the impacts of staff and their patients until commercial power was fully restored, which did not occur until the following late afternoon. So I want to thank uh, all the hardworking ZSFG staff who helped us respond uh, to, this, to this emergency. And of course, the staff worked very hard around the clock until full power was restored. Next item is the sixth annual Public Health Detailing Institute. The Capacity Building Assistant Program uh, of DPH's Center for Learning and Innovation hosted the annual Public Health Detailing Institute on March 29th through 31st. Public health detailing is an evidence-based approach to encourage clinical practice change through brief educational one-on-one -on -one provider visits. This was the first institute held since 2019. The focus of the institute this year was on syndemics or the interactions between health epidemics and other social determinants of health that can impact risk for contracting HIV. This was a multi-state uh, exercise uh, in, in this work and really proud of the team for, for leading this effort. And by um, all reports, it was, it was a great success. Next item is volunteers uh, are being asked for for uh, San Francisco's 40th annual carnival. Uh, the DPH Raza and Indigenous Affinity Group is excited to announce that they are coordinating staff volunteers for the historic 45th annual carnival event on Saturday, May 27th in the Mission District. And the contact uh, for volunteers is listed there. Also wanted to shout out the recognition on the next item, ZSFG's Chief Experiencing 
experience officer was recognized by Becker's Hospital Review, a leading uh, journal for hospitalists and, and, and hospital uh, executives. Congratulations to Ayanna Johnson, the chief experience officer at ZSFG for being on Becker's Hospital Review 2023 list of 50 plus hospital and health system chief experience officers to know. And then last item is with regard to the COVID update as we are uh, basically in a steady state with regard to, to our COVID cases, our seven day rolling average of new cases per day is 48 and 46 people um, were hospitalized as of March 29th, including four in the ICU. Just a reminder, this is all patients in the hospital who have tested positive for COVID. This does not necessarily mean that the people are in the hospital uh, because of COVID. 86% of all San Francisco residents have been vaccinated. 65% have received booster dose and our bivalent booster uh, percentage of, of residents who have received a bivalent booster has ticked up just a bit to 39% of residents who have received that much higher than the state and considerably higher than the national average. That is my director's report. I'm happy to take any questions from the commissioners. Thank you. Thank you, Director Colfax. Secretary Morowitz, do we have public comments? Are there any folks in the room? No, it looks like there's no folks in the room. Uh, folks online, um, if any of you have received a combination, please press star three now. Jeanette, can you um, unmute the first caller of those? Caller, please let us know that you're there. Um, this is Gloria Simpson. I was on hold for the warm poop um, comment and I was cleared twice. So may I make a comment on the warm poop program? There's no technical issue. Okay. Um, the public comment at this time is from items in the director's report. The appropriate time for such a comment would have been during the general public comment. So, right, which I was on hold. Right. Which I was on hold. Right. So, um, um, Janet, please please meet the caller. And, caller, please feel free to submit a written comment. Um, I saw the hand, and there was no hand up at that time. And um, the person who was moderating confirmed that with me. Please go to the next caller, Jeanette. This is YY, a.k.a. Patrick. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Please begin. You guys have gone on some sort of uh, faint recording. We can barely hear you uh, over the phone. I am uh, wondering why both Mr. Pickens uh, last week and now again Director Colfax is claiming that during the 90 day, the first 90 day um, monitoring survey, Laguna Honda had received 124 deficiencies. According to the first root cause analysis report, um, that uh, was based on the eight surveys Laguna Honda received between October 21 and April of 2022, um, that report, I'm sorry, not that, the first 90-day monitoring report that's dated January 31st, 2023, 
listed a total of 76 citations according to HSAG. So the question is whether HSAG is trying to hide duplicate occurrences of the 76 tags and uh, try to hide 48 deficiencies from their published report. So which is it, Dr. Colfax? Was it 76 as was reported in the first root cause analysis? Um, I mean, in the second root cause analysis report that covered the first 90-day monitoring survey, or was it 124? Why are you claiming 124 if HSAG had only uh, publicly noticed that there had been 76? Does somebody there at DPH or HSAG have a counting problem? Do you not know how to count? Do you not know how to report this data accurately? This is ridiculous that you have that large of a discrepancy of 48 additional deficiencies. You guys really need to explain this and uh, let the public know uh, who's presenting what numbers and what numbers are trying to be creatively hidden. It, it, I've read all of those reports, the total about 696 pages, and I'm flabbergasted at this variance. Thank you. All right, please go to the next caller. Let's see, it's, there's no caller. So folks who do not have accommodation, this is your time to raise your hand. So if you've not gotten accommodation and you would like to make comment on the director's report, please press star three now. Again, we're on the director's report. All right, no more callers, commissioners. All right, thank you. Commissioners, comments or questions? Vice President Green. Yes, well, thank you for the report. And I just have a question about how we're going to really track COVID because at least where I work, the hospital is only requiring COVID tests now for people who you highly suspect have the disease. And yet we know there are quite a few asymptomatic individuals who might be hospitalized, albeit for um, even something like a delivery. So how, do we have a sense of how we'll get, you know, really a reliable sense of the prevalence of the disease in the community going forward? The important thing, of course, is COVID driven hospitalizations, but I'm, I'm wondering if we have any sense or whether it's even worth our manpower to try to continue to collect these data. Yeah, I think that's a really good question, Commissioner. And quite frankly, I think you know, it's a work in progress and I do not believe we have an adequate system locally, statewide or nationally to track the prevalence of, of COVID cases. Um, and as you point out, as, as policies change in certain institutions in the city, less COVID may be detected because of different testing policies. So to date, while I certainly wouldn't say that the numbers that we're getting are exact, they do tend to track fairly well with, with going up before hospitalizations go up. Um, but I would say going forward, the most likely thing is that we still will have a, a good 
record of COVID cases and hospitalization. That's what we really need to be tracking uh, going forward. There is ongoing work with looking at things like sewage, wastewater, um, that there's a lot of variation in that, and, and that's still in the process of being uh, defined in how sensitive uh, that is and how reliable it is, because you also get situations, as I understand it, for instance, when you get massive amounts of rain and so forth, right, you have dilute, dilution event, events. And so um, that, that, is, that, is an issue, that is an issue with, with that monitoring as well. I think the bottom line is going forward, we need to be monitoring the hospitalizations um, and we also need to be watching um, with our colleagues at the state and at the national level for the emergence of, ver of uh, variants that, that may be more virulent and, and cause more hospitalizations. Great. Thank you, Thank you very much. Commissioner It's more of a comment. I just wanted to speak again to um, Ms. Ayanna Johnson's recognition by uh, Becker's review. It's no small feat uh, to be on one of their lists uh, given uh, the prominence that that uh, um, periodical uh, journal has uh, in the field and particularly for a hospital like ZSFG uh, when we think about the patient population that we have there uh, for her to be recognized as providing uh, a stellar uh, excellent uh, patient experience uh, uh, to be recognized as one of the top 50 I think really deserves another mention uh, and then uh, sort of related to that the uh, epic uh, welcome uh, that we're going to be launching and that'll be part of the overall uh, patient care experience. So it's really good to know uh, that San Francisco stands uh, above many others uh, in terms of really trying to make sure that uh, our, uh, the, the patients that come to our facilities uh, are treated with respect and dignity uh, and great care. Thank you. And if I can just also mention with regard to Ayanna Johnson, um, her leadership and, and, and skills have also been uh, gone beyond ZSFG. She's one of the key team members that we've also deployed uh, to Laguna Honda to continue to improve uh, that work as well. So thank you for that. Even Commissioner. better. <laughs> Commissioner Chow. Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, Director, for your report. Uh, sad to hear about our financial projection. And uh, at 50 million, uh, I'm reminded that in the past when we've had to uh, look at large sums like this, uh, although we have a huge budget, 5% uh, is still 5% uh, of a general budget. So in the past, uh, I'm just reminded that we did work with our community partners when we were looking at changes. And I'm hoping that since you're going to be bringing this in two weeks, that we're going to have an opportunity to have worked with them already through this process uh, so that we would have a understanding that uh, uh, people are on board if there are going to be changes into such contracts. Uh, I think secondly, we also have to understand often the department takes the hit first. And I think we should hear then uh, what that's going to mean in terms of differences in certain programs we have and so forth so that we're all aware of uh, the consequences of this potential. Um, and and uh, and then of course it's possible that the mayor won't put all that into the budget. So I guess you would help us uh, understand at what level uh, the mayor only has until what June one. So there's going to be quite a uh, a move uh, over those past several weeks if you can keep us all updated 
as to how we're going to be able to accommodate all the programs that we've been all talking about, which ones have to be changed, and how well we are working with our community partners. So um, the, the second which was uh, actually less of a uh, issue was, um, I'm happy to hear that the welcome has six languages, and I'm wondering uh, which languages those are. I'm, I would have to turn, uh, we can get you the information on the languages unless somebody um, has that. I don't know that uh, Mr. Raffin, who's our EPIC lead, is on the line, so we'll make sure we'll get that to you. Sure, because uh, I, I, I think one of the questions in, in the past has been trying to be able to have people make use of this. Yes. And that uh, the language issue has been there for the last uh, several years, so really is uh, a wonderful accomplishment if we're able to have access for all the people who are using uh, uh, a different language as a primary language, and it'd be really, uh, I, I think, a, a great help. I guess lastly on the Laguna Honda, um, I had a question uh, in terms of where we are standing with the um, pause on discharges, which is actually, again, eminent, in which the uh, state and the federal government doesn't seem to want to give patients sort of a comfort level since I believe the date is still in, uh, what, mid-May or uh, uh, soon after that in terms of what was supposed to be a resumption. So it's kind of um, really, uh, you know, impacting upon patients. Well, what are we going to do? Do we uh, go through this process? Um, and, and I thought that uh, uh, the second question in that regard, and not in that regard, but in regards to our progress, which has been really tremendous, uh, coming down from a uh, uh, federal uh, uh, review of 100 and some odd uh, citations uh, areas uh, down to 23. But those, I understand, are different than the tags, right, in terms of, so there could be a difference that these these citations actually could wrap into several numbers of tags, and therefore the tags may, in fact, be less than the uh, a number of citations. Uh, and, and so I think the public needs to understand that there's really a difference in the types of reporting and, and the definitions of those. But uh, if you could just uh, uh, respond to uh, the issue of the pause. Sure. So um, if I could just say one thing about the budget, because I, I do think it's important. Oh, sure. to, you know, so just to emphasize, we already it, it presented to the Health Commission a 5% reduction in the budget cost. And thanks to the work of the budget team and it, across DPH, we were able to do that without making service cuts or, or having any, any layoffs. I do want to just, I can't sugarcoat another 5% is, 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 is you know, we, we were at the bone with the 5%, right? So if the first 5%. So this is going to be a, a tough period and quite frankly, it's gonna be a period we haven't gone through for, for a while in terms of figuring out how to squeeze out another another 5% cut. We will do it. And as you know, our commissioner, we have, you know, excellent 
superb people um, on the financial side and superb people on the operation side, and obviously uh, ensuring that you know we're working across our system and and with partners in this. But it's, it is going to be a really challenging time, and that's why I really wanted to emphasize the April 18th date because it's also a really short timeline uh, for 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 coming um, to the table with with the proposed cuts. In terms of the pause, um, we have. The, the pause in transfers uh, is such that the earliest transfers would resume uh, is, is May 19th. Um, we have not received any further update from CMS with regard to, to that date changing. Um, I will say that you will also recall that we were, that we were required to submit a closure plan uh, and that plan was submitted to CMS and the state, the last, the draft um, that was requested was submitted in February to CMS in the state, and we have yet to receive an approval of that closure plan. Um, and as I believe Mr. Pickens has made clear, you know, we also um, uh, wanted to support the Laguna Honda residents and, and their and, and, and their families with regard to understanding how traumatic it is to be. Um, potentially transferred to another SNF. We saw what happened um, when we had to go through that before. And there are also um, patients, at, residents at Laguna Honda who do not need a, a level of, of skilled nursing facility care. For both of those populations, without a closure plan being approved, um, we are not able to transfer anybody uh, from Laguna Honda at, at this time. So I, I, what my main update is, we don't have a closure plan approved. May 19th is, is, is still the date uh, that the earliest that, that people um, would be transferred uh, at, at this time. And again, we've asked um, for more clarity around when that closure plan will be approved. I'm cautiously optimistic that plan will be approved uh, sometime uh, soon, but I don't have a specific date for you. Uh, and then one last thing, uh, the, the six languages, I do have an update on the six languages. Uh, let me just get that for you so I don't. Uh, so the, the six languages are English, Spanish, Chinese, Russian, Tagalog, and Vietnamese for, for the welcome for EPIC. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Director Colfax. And I just would, would like to underscore some of the points uh, made by Commissioner Chow that not only is there the stress of the transfer, but also the uncertainty that these families experience leading up to this. And the sooner that we are able to let folks know that this threat of transfer does not exist, the better. So, uh, you know, the Commission's fully in support of your efforts to receive a response as quickly as possible from CMS and the state on that one. So, and also uh, would like to, of course, commend Greg, uh, Greg Wagner and Jenny Louie and others for the hard work that they're putting into the uh, budget and the adjustments that have been requested by the mayor's office, which of course is in advance of the mayor submitting her budget to the Board of Supervisors. So thank you. Um, other questions or comments? All right, we can move on to our next item, uh, which is uh, for discussion, Ordinance 077-22 Health Code, Skilled Nursing Care Transfer Reporting Requirements in, uh, in Calendar Years 2021 and 2022 Report. Uh, for this, we have Claire Altman, Senior Pro Program Planner from the Office of Policy and Planning. Welcome.
afternoon, commissioners. My name is Claire Altman. I'm a senior health program planner with DPH's Office of Policy and Planning. And I'm joined today also by Kelly Hiramoto, my colleague, uh, who's a special projects manager with DPH. And today we'll be presenting the 2021 and 2022 skilled nursing and subacute transfer reports as required by local ordinance. So for today's presentation, you all have received the 2021 and 2022 data report, which provides information and data in much greater detail. Um, so, and then I'd also like to say before I begin that um, I'm also joined both in person and remotely by representatives of ZSFG, Kaiser, Dignity Hospitals, Kentfield Hospital and Chinese Hospital. So if you have any specific questions about the facilities data, they will be able to answer. Um, unfortunately, UCSF and CPMC weren't able to join us today remotely. And I do wanna note that um, I did not invite Laguna Honda or Jewish Home to be here today for their data because the report really focuses and the intent of the ordinance is to really um, speak more about the general acute care hospitals um, transfers. And then the last thing I'm just gonna know is I'm hoping that we can save questions for the end of uh, the presentation. All right, so next slide, please. All right, so for today's presentation, I want to briefly note the background and the context for this local ordinance. Um, as you're all aware, upon the closure of St. Luke's Hospital, CPMC transferred patients from their St. Luke's subacute unit to their Davies campus. And there are currently seven subacute patients at CPMC Davies. And these subacute beds will be closed when the last patient um, leaves. So San Francisco does not have any admitting subacute skilled nursing facilities in the city. And this leads patients and San Francisco residents to, who require subacute care to be transferred out of county. So in May of 2022, the Board of Supervisors passed an ordinance to have a better understanding of the full scope of need for subacute care, and it was later expanded upon to include general skilled nursing care. So just briefly, I'm going to describe these levels of care. Uh, skilled nursing care is nursing or therapy care uh, for patients who are medically stable, but who do require um, uh, health needs performed by skilled professionals daily. And subacute care is a level of care that's needed for patients who require ongoing specialized care like tracheotomy care, uh, ventilator care after acute hospitalization. And it's really um, a level of care that requires medical technology to compensate for loss of vital bodily function. Next slide, please. Right. So the ordinance passed by the Board of Supervisors amends the health code to require general acute care hospitals and hospital-based skilled nursing facilities in the city to annually report to DPH information about skilled nursing transfers. And specifically, per the legislation in the ordinance, it requires facilities to collect data on the number of San Francisco residents and non-residents who qualify for skilled nursing care while admitted, and they're either transferred outside of the county for that care, or they remain in the city in an acute care bed or hospital-based hospital skilled nursing facility, um, which I'm calling those patients, patients not transferred. And I do wanna note that this does not include in-county transfers. So for each patient category, facilities are also required to report demographic information, including age, race, ethnicity, gender, gender identity, and sexual orientation, if it is already collected by the facility, patient insurance provider, and housing status. And I wanna note at the top of this presentation that that information is not all accessible for our reporting health facilities. 
and I'll be discussing some of the challenges collecting that data today during the presentation. And then lastly, the ordinance defines skilled nursing care as including general skilled nursing care and subacute care, but given the interest um, in subacute care specifically, we, DPH, chose to request that data separately. Next slide, please. So this slide shows the San Francisco facilities that are required to report through the ordinance. Um, facilities are required to report that are licensed as general acute care hospitals or hospital-based skilled nursing facilities. Chinese Hospital, CPMC, UCSF, Kaiser, Dignity Hospitals, and ZSFG are the general acute care hospitals reporting. Kentfield Hospital, San Francisco, is a critical care hospital, also known as a long-term acute care hospital. And it's a specialty hospital that's designed to address extended hospitalization stays for patients with complex medical needs. Laguna Honda Hospital and Rehabilitation Center and Jewish Home and Rehab Center are also required to report because their license includes general, general acute care beds. However, because these facilities both primarily serve long-term care and provide skilled nursing care, instead we provide, or the department provided special instructions for their reporting, asking instead for um, patient, their resident uh, skilled nursing census. And DPH was responsible for issuing the guidelines regarding the data format for each of the facilities reports. And the first reports were due October 1st to, to the department um, with 2022 data due January 31st of this year. And then moving forward, data reports will be due to the department every January 31st. And then we'll have a report to the health commission annually as well. And I wanna take a moment just to recognize the work that each reporting health facility did. While the department did put this data all together in a report, each reporting health facility went through and found a methodology to collect and report this data to our department. So um, I do want to appreciate their work. Next slide, please. All right, so the image on the right of this slide shows um, one of the pages of the data collection tool. And the data collection tool was provided in appendix A and B in your report. All reporting health facilities utilized our data workbook to report the data but they utilized a variety of tools to collect the data that's required in the ordinance. And so these methods um, utilized by each data uh, or each reporting health facility is detailed in the report. Um, and some of the common methods are on the slide as well. All reporting health facilities utilize discharge status codes to determine the number of patients who were transferred to a skilled nursing facility because skilled nursing facilities or skilled nursing discharges is a standardly defined uh, patient discharge status code in electronic health records, which I'll just say EHR from now on. However, subacute is not a standardly defined patient discharge status code that's built into EHRs. So to find subacute transfers, many hospitals had to rely on manual reviews of medical charts to find those patients. Two reporting health facilities, Kaiser and Dignity Hospitals, have access to referral management systems, and this referral data was used to capture patients that met the medical criteria of skilled nursing or subacute if the patient had a referral to a facility that offers that level of care. And ZSFG uniquely captures lower level of care days, and these days indicate when a patient's acute medical condition uh, resolves or if they were admitted without an acute medical condition essentially that that patient should be discharged to a different level of care. So in summary, you know, all of these reporting health facilities had unique tools to report the data 
And because of the variety of methodologies that were used, our report for this year was limited um, and hospitals data could not be compared or it could not be aggregated. So for the next few slides, I'm gonna be spending some time presenting each hospital's reported data and, um, and their method for collecting that data. And I do wanna note that um, in accordance with privacy rules, instances where there was a patient population or data values of less than 10, they were suppressed in the report and they're also suppressed in the slides. Right, next slide, please. <clears throat> right, so I'm gonna begin with Chinese Hospital. Chinese Hospital utilized discharge disposition data and accepting facility address to determine which patients went to a skilled nursing facility out of county. Looking at the skilled nursing transfers between 2021 and 2022, Chinese Hospital believes that the increase has to do with facilities generally being more open to accepting patients due to changes in COVID uh, protocols. And while Chinese Hospital was not able to provide an estimate for the number of patients who qualify for skilled nursing but are not transferred to that level of care, they did provide DPH with the number of in-county transfers. And so I'll just briefly talk about that even though it's not present on the slide. But in 2021, Chinese Hospital discharged 121 patients to in-county skilled nursing facilities. And in 2022, they, or they transferred 134 patients to in-county skilled nursing facilities. So by having that detailed information about in-county transfers, we're able to see that uh, most patients that are discharged to a SNF from Chinese Hospital go in-county. And to find the subacute discharges, Chinese Hospital manually reviewed the charts of all patients that were discharged to a skilled nursing facility to find those patients that did met, meet the medical criteria of subacute. And as you can see, for both years, there were fewer than 10 transfers to subacute facilities. Next slide, please. Right, so Kaiser utilized discharge data to determine the number of transfers to an out-of-county facility. And to find the population who are qualifying for skilled nursing care but are not transferred, uh, Kaiser utilized their, their referral software system called CarePort. And CarePort collected patients who had a referral to skilled nursing or met the qualifications for skilled nursing, but ultimately were not discharged to that level of care. And Kaiser noted that that could mean many different things. It could mean the patient's health status changed. It could mean that they actually required a different level of care. It could mean that they discharged home. They may have passed. But what we do know is that those patients uh, did not discharge to a SNF out of county. And Kaiser's EHR um, and referral system both uniquely have a code for subacute built into their systems. And that's why they were able to use discharge data for both uh, subacute or subacute and SNF populations. And as you can see, um, again, there were fewer than 10 um, transfers for subacute in 2021 and 2022. All right, next slide, please. So like Kaiser, Dignity also used a referral management tool to determine the number of patients who qualify for skilled nursing care while admitted at their hospitals. Um, and their system is called Navi Health. So Dignity staff then manually matched patients with a record of a SNF referral in Navi Health to their discharge data to determine the number of patients who were discharged to an out-of-county SNF. And in 2021, Dignity was unable to match patient demographic information for all referrals and discharges. Therefore, there's potentially double counting between the 2021 transferred and referred populations for both SNF and subacute. 
Dignity did change their methodology and base demographic data that they used for 2021. So all patients were matched in 2022. And then last, or I want to also say Navi Health um, as a referral system does not necessarily differentiate between skilled nursing and subacute. So in order to find patients and discharges for, um, to out-of-county facilities for subacute care, Dignity referenced the list of certified subacute providers. And if a patient was referred and transferred to a facility on that list of certified providers, they would be counted as a subacute transfer or a subacute referral. But many of those facilities on that list provide general skilled nursing and subacute care. So it is likely that we're conflating patients who actually transferred for skilled nursing care with patients that actually went for subacute care. So that's why at the, the table on the slide, it says um, referrals for skilled nursing, the facility offers subacute care. And then I also wanna mention that there is also a duplication between the referrals for skilled nursing and referrals for facilities that offer subacute care. In the course of one patient's stay, they may have multiple referrals. So they may be referred to multiple different facilities, one that has uh, subacute care and one that is only SNF care. So they could be potentially counted twice in the analysis. And then again, just looking at the subacute transfers, we can see that for both years, fewer than 10 uh, transfers were made uh, to, sub to facilities that offer subacute care. Next slide, please. Right. Moving on to CPMC. Um, so CPMC utilized discharge data to report the number of patients transferred for skilled nursing facilities. Um, their data uh, includes both in-county transfers and out-of-county transfers. They don't currently document accepting facility address, and so they are unable to determine patients that went out-of-county versus in-county. And for subacute um, patients, uh, CPMC's care coordination team manually tracks information about patients each time someone is transferred to a subacute care facility. And then similar to Chinese Hospital, CPMC said that they don't have a mechanism to currently track patients who are qualifying for SNF or for skilled nursing level of care, um, but are ultimately not discharged to that level of care. And regarding the subacute transfers, um, fewer than 10 patients were transferred for subacute care. Right, next slide, please. Right, so UCSF analyzed discharge data as well for the total number of transfers to skilled nursing facilities out of county. And they also uniquely have a discharge status code that is built into their EHR looking for, um, for subacute transfers. But CP or UCSF stated that while they do collect discharge information on 100% of their cases, um, there are gaps in documenting the address of the facility location that the patient is discharged to. So UCSF found that some patients that had a subacute discharge went to facilities that don't offer subacute care um, and instead offer skilled nursing care or they may offer other services. So the actual number of subacute transfers um, listed in the report and on this slide um, is actually, their number is actually less than what is reported. And UCSF was not able to confirm all subacute discharges uh, because facility address was not available for all discharges. And then similar to CPMC and, UC, er, and Chinese Hospital, UCSF also does not currently have a mechanism to track patients who may qualify for skilled nursing or subacute care and are not transferred. Um, but this past year, UCSF did say that they recently updated their referral documentation procedures, so they may have refu referral information for future years. Right. 
Next slide, please. <clears throat> so ZSFG also utilized discharge data for the number of SNF transfers, and they used lower level of care data, or LLOC, uh, for patients who qualified for skilled care but were not transferred. And as mentioned earlier, lower level of care days indicate when a patient's acute medical condition resolved, they were admitted without one, um, and they should be discharged to a different level of care. ZSFG utilization nurses perform daily reviews to determine if a patient meets, meets the acute or intensive inpatient criteria. And so examples of lower level of care includes patients who are receiving skilled nursing level of care in an acute care setting, which is really the patient population that we're looking for. And so if a patient meets that lower level of care criteria during an encounter, uh, they are captured in this data set. And at the request of DPH staff, ZSFG modified their methodology between 2021 and 2022, um, which is noted that's why there's quite the difference. Um, we requested that for 2022, their data does not include in-county transfers. Uh, the patient population that receives skilled nursing care at ZSFG in their 4A, um, nor custodial level of care patients. And in 2021, ZSFG did not have a way to standardly collect uh, subacute transfers, but for 2022, uh, ZSFG first looked at the total population of patients who were discharged to a skilled nursing facility and then found patients like Dignity did, uh, found patients who were discharged to a facility that offered subacute care. And then from that patient population, ZSFG reviewed each medical chart to see if the patient met the medical criteria for subacute just prior to discharge. And as you can see, uh, fewer than 10 uh, patients were transferred to a facility that offers subacute care and had subacute orders prior to discharge. Next slide, please. So Kentfield, San Francisco utilized discharge data to estimate the total number of patients who were transferred to an out-of-county health facility for both skilled nursing and for subacute care. And similar to other facilities, uh, Kentfield does not have a mechanism to track patients who are qualifying for a level of care but are not transferred to that location. And Kentfield believes that the reason for the decrease in the number of out-of-county SNF transfers between 2021 and 2022 had to do with a limited availability of staffed SNF beds. I also want to note that Kentfield uh, cares for a patient population with more complex health needs, which may be the reason that the number of patients transferred for subacute care is higher compared to other facilities. And then lastly, I do want to note that um, for Kentfield's data, the majority of their discharges for both SNF and subacute are not SF residents. So these are out of um, these are from out of county, and UCSF's data is similar to that in that their uh, skilled nursing transfers, the majority of them are um, non-SF residents. Next slide. And then as mentioned earlier, both Laguna Honda and Jewish Home um, and Rehab Center provide skilled nursing care. And so we gave them special instructions for their data reports, instead asking for the total number of skilled nursing patients served in each calendar year. Looking at Laguna Honda, as you all know, beginning in April of 2022, Laguna Honda was, uh, could not accept SNF patients from other facilities and were required to transfer residents to other skilled nursing facilities. So the 39 patients transferred um, were out of county. And I also wanna note that for Laguna's data in the report, 
like other facilities um, after the first report, the methodology changed for collecting the information between 2021 and 2022. So those, that data should not be compared. And on a similar note about the data on this slide, um, the total number of residents who received skilled nursing care at Jewish Home between 2021 and 2022 um, should also not be compared. Uh, Jewish Home and Rehab Center did not provide 2021 data, and so DPH staff used the 2021 um, hospital utilization data charts that are um, put out by the state. And neither facility provides subacute care, um, and in 2021 and 2022 did not make referrals to subacute facilities. Next slide, please. So while there are limitations to the analysis of 2021 and 2022 data reports because of the variety of methodologies that were utilized to collect the data, we do have a greater understanding of the population who required skilled nursing and subacute services across San Francisco and have been transferred out of county. Uh, we found that most patients who were transferred to an out of county skilled nursing facility were adults over age 65. We found that the population transferred out of county is racially and ethnically diverse. We found that Medicare is the most common payer type amongst patients transferred out of county for skilled nursing, but that there is a large proportion of patients, um, of subacute patients specifically, that are covered by Medi-Cal compared to skilled nursing. Next slide. So I think as evidenced by the presentation um, in the report, there's a number of considerations that DPH took into account for reporting this data. Uh, first, the variety of EHR systems and referral systems that are utilized by hospitals. Um, there just wasn't a common methodology used between reporting facilities, which made the data much harder to compare between facilities. Second, because subacute is not a standardly defined patient discharge status code that's built into EHRs, nearly all facilities had to have unique methods for finding those patients. Third, um, patient clinical presentation and treatment needs often change during the course of admission. Facilities reported not being able to differentiate between a patient who may be waiting for a skilled nursing bed and a patient who, you know, one day needed a, or was referred to a skilled nursing bed and then the next day their, their health improved and they no longer needed that bed. And then fourth, uh, patient data has not been deduplicated. So one individual may have had multiple encounters. They may have been transferred to a skilled nursing facility more than once from a, from a reporting health facility in a calendar year. And so they could potentially be captured more than once in, in this data set. And then lastly, um, facilities were not required to report in-county data. So our data set and what we're reporting does not show a complete picture of skilled nursing transfers of San Francisco residents and non-residents. All right, so while these considerations, they did limit our report findings, um, and I wanna recognize that this is the first report um, of this data, um, and so there are, there are opportunities for improvement. Next slide, please. So with all the limitations in mind, um, the department will continue to work with our reporting health facilities to improve the data collection for future reports. And we also look forward to sharing all of these methodologies with the different reporting health facilities. 
Um, we're also looking into collecting in-county transfer data, which would potentially give us that more cohesive look at skilled nursing transfers. We're looking at collecting administrative day data, which may provide insight into the population of patients who are remaining in an acute care bed without an acute care need. Um, it's similar to the lower level of care data that ZSFG was able to report. And while not all facilities have access to referral data, we do know that ZSFG um, may be able to report that for future, ref or for future years. And then I wanna acknowledge that any requests for additional data that we're looking into would be outside of the requirements of the ordinance. And we're really focused on the requirements in the ordinance for today's report. Um, so it may not be possible for all reporting health facilities to report additional data. And recognizing that their data systems um, that they use are highly individualized and complex. And so any changes to reporting procedures or requests may take years to develop. It may take years and additional staff training uh, for any new procedures. And it could um, lead to you know, significant financial resources for any of these changes. So again, I just wanna share my appreciation though um, to my colleagues at the different reporting health facilities who have been very collaborative in this process um, and we look forward to continuing to work with them. So now I'm, or next slide please. So now I'm gonna invite uh, my colleague Kelly Hiramoto, uh, DPH Pro Special Projects Manager, who's gonna speak about the department's current efforts for subacute care. Thank you, Claire. Um, good afternoon, commissioners. Next slide, please. DPH has been working to support the development of new subacute beds in San Francisco and to also try and address the limited access to skilled nursing facility beds um, for hospital discharges. We're continuing discussions with San Francisco hospitals around partnerships for subacute beds. Thank you. In 2022, the San Francisco Department of Public Health released a request for proposal um, for subacute skilled nursing and skilled nursing facility beds for hospital overflow. Two facilities were identified as eligible for contract awards, one being Chinese Hospital for subacute skilled nursing and skilled nursing hospital overflow. And the other was San Francisco Healthcare and Rehab for skilled nursing hospital overflow only. Chinese Hospital currently has a dedicated 23 bed unit that is currently being utilized for the SNF overflow from SFGH. Um, Chinese Hospital is working towards SNF and subacute certification uh, DPH and Milliman, a partner consultant um, that we're working with um, through the uh, controller's office, are working closely um, with them uh, through the process um, to try and get to successful um, certification. CSFG and UCSF um, at this time are confirmed partners to use the SNF overflow beds. Chinese Hospital was also awarded $5 million from the state to support renovating a unit to provide subacute care. This will add up to an additional 30 subacute beds. This unit will go through licensing and certification as well, but on a different timeline since the renovation work has to be completed. San Francisco Healthcare and Rehab is an existing freestanding 168 bed skilled nursing facility in San Francisco. And they're currently in the process of becoming a contractor for skilled nursing hospital overflow. In 2021, Milliman, uh, the consultant, updated the financial pro forma that provided estimated costs for maintaining a subacute unit. However, in 2023, implementation of CalAIM brought long-term services and supports um, under the health plans. Um, this will have financial impacts to long-term care reimbursement, and we will begin collaborating with the health plans to support subacute beds 
so they can become financially viable and more stable going forward. We appreciate your continued interest in keeping subacute care in San Francisco, and we're happy to answer any questions you have. All right. Thank you very much. Before we go to commissioner comments or questions, do we have public comment? Yes. Let me make sure. Is there anyone in the room who would like to make public comment? Okay, so let's first go to the folks who've received accommodation. Um, if you'd like to raise your hand, press star three. Again, there are two people. Jeanette, please, um, please un, uh, unmute the first person. Hi, this is Patrick again. Please begin, Between, Mr. Minister. Thank you. Between 2006 and 2019, SFDPH public records responses provided to me show 1,736 out-of-county transfers for SNF placement, but only based on very limited data during that 13-year period. GCH claims your ineffective electronic health record system, ECLIC, is incapable of identifying out-of-county SNF discharges. But EPIC Corporation confirmed to me that there is a specific discharge notes module identifying discharge locations by the name of the facilities discharged to, including their city and zip code. This report you just heard in response to Ordinance 77-22 shows 4,186 transfers of patients across all San Francisco hospitals, excluding Kentfield, which is owned by a Marin County hospital chain, to out-of-county SNF facilities in calendar year 22, and 4,185 such discharges in 2021. This happened because your commission granted so many Prop Q closures of private sector hospital-based SNF units. We've lost 1,381 SNF beds in county, losing 120 beds at Laguna Honda will push that to 1,501 lost beds, leaving the city only 2,161 remaining SNF beds in the city. This commission should aggressively pursue increasing SNF capacity in county. The takeaway to me from this report is that while it's um, a terrible situation that we have no subacute care facilities who have been willing to accept new patients since 2017, six years ago, that the bigger problem is that we also are discharging way too many San Franciscans to out-of-county facilities far, far away. And if Your time is up, Mr. Minichel. Jeanette, please unmute the next person. Call it. Please let us know you're there, caller. Yeah. Uh, good afternoon, health commissioners. 
My name is Raquel Rivera, and my sister is one of the six remaining subacute patients at CPMC Davies campus. Um, I just want to correct that there are now six patients remaining uh, in the subacute unit that is expected to close when the last uh, patient dies. A beloved patient uh, passed away this morning. Um, I am here to urge you to prevent the relocation of subacute patients out of San Francisco and to take action to ensure that subacute care services remain available and accessible within San Francisco. The Health Commission has a duty to promote and protect the health and well-being of San Francisco residents. One important way to fulfill this duty is by ensuring that necessary health care services, such as subacute care, are provided within the community. The relocation of subacute patients out of San Francisco has negative consequences for both patients and the community as a whole. Patients who are transferred out of their communities often experience higher rates of depression, anxiety, and social isolation. This not only negatively impacts their health, but also takes a toll on their families and caregivers. As leaders within the community, the Health Commission has a responsibility to consider the broader implications of the relocation of subacute patients out of San Francisco. By taking steps to ensure that subacute care services remain available within the city, you can help promote the health and well-being of patients and their families. Again, I urge the San Francisco Health Commission to take action to ensure that subacute care services remain available and accessible within the city. This may include exploring regulatory or legislative options to promote greater transparency and accountability in the transfer process, or incentivizing healthcare providers to keep subacute patients within the San Francisco community. Health commissioners, what steps are you taking to help ensure that this vital care remains available in San Francisco? Thank you. And I believe that was the last caller. Um, Jeanette, can you confirm for me? Yes, that was the last hand up. Thank you. Commissioners, any comments or questions? Commissioner Gerardo. Thank you. And I just want to thank you for, it was an excellent report and was, I'm sure, very challenging to put together. Um, my question you may or may not have the answer to, but I am most curious since there was, you know, the out-of-county transfers are significant for both skilled and subacute. Do you have an idea of what counties that... Um, are the patients are going to uh, sorry uh, thank you for the question um, so we did we did ask if if they're able to to provide you know the list of facilities that patients went to if they do collect that data or if they're able to share it you know some some hospitals could not share that information with us because you know of uh, patient privacy and confidentiality um, and so you know I, I did look through where some of them are, I could not find all of the facilities. And so I don't have that information for you today, um, unfortunately, but potentially in the future, um, since we do ask for the hospitals to provide that data, we may have a better idea of which counties they're mostly going to. Um, so I'd be happy to provide that in the future if we're able to. I think it would be really helpful to know or 
you know, the patients going to that are San Francisco residents, are they going to Shasta County or Lawson County or, you know, San Mateo? <laughs> so I think, I think it would be um, just on a general basis, I think it would be very helpful. But thank you for your report. And I just, um, if it's okay, I just want to know also that one thing that we also considered and we heard from the facilities is, um, you know, for some of these transfers, um, sometimes patient families do request that they go to a county closer to where the family lives as well. So that's just something that we'll have to consider with um, if we do look at data or look at the information that's provided of where these facilities are, that in, in some cases it is the family who is requesting that the patient be discharged to that location. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, oh, Commissioner Chung. So actually following up on what you just mentioned, actually that's, that's one of the things that I'm really curious about. Is there a way to actually capture that to, to let us know whether the, the patients who are being discharged to, um, you know, like skilled nursing or subacute care out of county have family in that county? Um, thank you for the question. Yes. I, I would have to uh, refer to the hospitals and ask if that is something that they are collecting, you know, in their records, um, or if it is possible to collect. Um, I don't have that information. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah, I think that you know this is what we've been hearing is that you know like family members feel that they're not being transferred to somewhere that they can reach them. So, so you know, like if we actually have data to show otherwise, it will be very helpful. Thank you for the question. Commissioner Chow. Uh, yes, uh, uh, let me follow up uh, Commissioner Chung's uh, point. Uh, it seems to me that when we send patients to skilled nursing facilities, uh, we're, we're required to submit clinical information and uh, on a transfer, we must know where they're going. So it is really, uh, concerning to me that all these different data systems are not capturing where somebody is actually being referred to because the clinical data is going with that patient and you know clearly the staff knows we're sending to skilled nursing x y or z and also most skilled nursing facilities kind of do a um, a review of the case before accepting them so for a data system not to be able to collect this, uh, several data systems apparently not being able to collect it is really mysterious. And, and I don't know where that data goes because it really is part of the record. It's got to show where people go and people you know, are transferred with all this medical data. So I'm not sure uh, if uh, you know the systems, it sounds like they're trying to correct the systems, but but somehow either we, uh, when developing those systems, didn't put that data in, or uh, you know, it may be a module needed or something like that. Uh, does look like uh, you know, San Francisco General is able to uh, understand who's going where, um, maybe not necessarily which places, but who is being discharged out, and just continues to uh, bother me that I mean, we don't know that they went somewhere. I'm sure that if I looked up patient A, I can find out where patient A went because it's got to be in the discharge record. Um, so, so 
that was mystifying to me as I read your very excellent report. I mean, and, and you were really trying to uh, stay within an ordinance that was very fuzzy. And, and I think uh, you correctly uh, also uh, got into the subacute business. Uh, uh, it's it, it's a historical issue with me in terms of this whole subacute problem that uh, we faced, and and we've also faced. Uh, let me just parenthetically note that the commission has noted that loss of skilled nursing beds, which is all that uh, you know, is is detrimental to the county. So it isn't that we've forgotten that, and all Prop Q can do is say it is, you know, detrimental or not detrimental. So. We've certainly known that the skilled nursing issues of being out of county and 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 uh, uh, multiple reasons here, including the high costs of uh, of labor, uh, did create some of the problems in terms of the sniff losses. So the commission has not been ignoring that. Uh, it's uh, you know with all the different priorities that the uh, department has faced, and certainly notwithstanding the three years of almost standstill, right? I think it's amazing that you even have this report. Let me get back for a moment to the subacute, because yeah. we remember the subacute crisis came about in part with the rebuild of CPMC and the closure of a subacute at uh, St. Luke's, which was already fairly small. Uh, but that really did leave us, and we did note that that was a significant problem in the city and had asked the department to really see what we could do about it. Uh, uh, part of the development agreement uh, had a CPMC assisting us to get this started, but then uh, further assistance was really needed on the part of the department and I know all the resources. So I'm really pleased that you have, in fact, and the last page is really very encouraging, your last pages, of uh, the fact that you are coming to some solutions for the city here in terms of us uh, being able to, uh, again, offer subacute beds. And I want to acknowledge that, uh, uh, as you said, uh, Chinese uh, is actually here in person, I see, with the uh, uh, president, uh, uh, Dr. Zhang, and uh, the, our uh, it's, it's, is your title CEO of the hospital, uh, Michael? Uh, well, I, I got those backwards, perhaps. But a anyway, it's very nice to hear because I think they're that they're able to then offer a uh, and and the county working together to try to solve both uh, part of the uh, well solve the subacute problem and also. Uh, been active in currently uh, working on behalf of uh, uh, SF General and our uh, problem of trying to get the lower level of care out. So I'm really pleased and thank the director for also uh, seeing that these are high priorities at this point from a need that this commission has understood for years. And, and it really is nice to see that there is uh, some light at the end of the tunnel that there is a possibility that we actually will bring subacute beds back into San Francisco and uh, be able to respond to uh, our needs. So I, I wanted to thank you for uh, being able to, uh, uh, you know, uh, answer uh, after many years. <laughs> but uh, this uh, problem is subacute. And, and, and I guess in uh, a government, we have to take the advances as they come. 
and understand the length of time it takes, but it sounds like we're on the verge, finally, of solving a problem that's been here for um, at least a decade. So uh, I want to thank you for this report and look forward to the, uh, and hope we get an update on uh, how the progress is coming in terms of uh, both sides of acute and uh, skilled nursing. You had mentioned that this was uh, uh, a, uh, a relationship that also then uh, Zuckerberg and uh, UC were working with you on. So does that mean that all of the uh, admissions are actually going to be coming from these two institutions or uh, is it going to be open uh, to other institutions that might need uh, subacute and uh, the uh, skilled nursing services. I, I know there are two parts to that. So. Sure. so there are two parts, two different kinds of beds for the skilled nursing overflow beds right now. Um, only SFGH and UCSF have expressed interest in, in, in ta uh, taking advantage of using those beds. Uh, and then for the subacute, the hospitals um, were in ongoing discussions with them about how each of them are willing to partner. Some of them are still thinking about it and some have um, at this point are leaning away from it, but we haven't um, finalized that decision until we know those beds are online and then we'll really be working more closely with everyone. So, so uh, at the moment, uh, it is Zuckerberg who is using the SNF beds yes. over at Chinese and, and that's what we yes. understood in terms of our flow problems. And uh, uh, But in the future, we're still negotiating that or if it's, it's uh, subject to carriers, insurances, or what? It, the, the access to the beds is really going to be um, something that the department is negotiating with um, the different hospitals to figure out who wants to partner to make use of those beds. When they're not being used as subacute beds, they can be used as sniff overflow beds. And there um, is a share of cost in order to be able to access the, those beds, which is how we're keeping the unit viable. Um, and that is the part that got a little bit, uh, is going to be a little bit tricky with CalAIM and how we're going to be able to do supplemental payments to keep the unit um, open. Um, but at this point, UCSF is the only other partnered hospital that's expressed interest. With the um, extended delay in admissions at Laguna Honda, um, we're um, predominantly using it for SFGH because the, the need is, is great there and UCSF has an understanding. Um, we've negotiated that right now, uh, once uh, things with Laguna Honda get more situated, um, they will access three of the beds of the 23 bed unit. And then when the 30 beds come online, we'll talk about um, increasing that amount. So what would be a good time in which uh, the commission could get a progress report on uh, the subject since we look like we're moving towards uh, some sort of solution? Uh, would it be uh, half a year? I would say right now, um, Chinese Hospital is just stepping through getting um, their final survey from CDPH, which we're hoping will be scheduled soon um, in May. Uh, I think then we'll have a sense of knowing um, next steps to get CMS certifications so, so they can be Medi-Cal, Medicare payable. Um, that we anticipate that process is going to be uh, probably about a year uh, if we fast track, uh, probably closer to 18 months. We can give you a progress report in six months to let you know sort of overall how our negotiations are going with San Francisco Healthcare and Rehab and also how the progress is going with um, the Ch Chinese hospital moving forward into certification. So, uh, Mr. President, I think it would be helpful to get a update so that we can keep uh, uh, track of uh, the progress of this uh, important project. Very good point, Commissioner Chow. Uh, I know Secretary Morowitz is taking, uh, taking note of that. Commissioner Guillermo. 
thank you. Uh, I want to also thank you for uh, the report, uh, given that this is the this was a, a needed collaboration amongst all of the hospitals in the city that needed to uh, be able to provide the data uh, that's necessary. Uh, my concern is that given uh, that each of the uh, hospitals have varying uh, methodologies for collecting the data, um, I don't. Um, I don't know how long it's going to be, how long it will take for so some uniformity uh, to occur, given that most of these hospitals are part of systems that would otherwise need sort of a sort of a the the uh, the um, head office or you know a systemic sort of uh, process to collect other than what is required from the ordinance uh, to make uh, the sort of sort of the um, the information that that we need to track the progress and actually to create policy as a result of the data. For instance, uh, the data that would provide us with um, in-county transfers and comparing that to out-of-county would give us a better context for being able to understand what the situation is. I mean, right now we only have out-of-county transfer data or non-transferred but qualified uh, patient data and that gives us some information but it doesn't give us the whole picture. And so I think that that's something that if we can get continued cooperation uh, uh, from the hospitals that are uh, making the referrals, uh, you know, that, that would be important, but I don't think we should get our expectations up too high uh, for that. And so we have to look for alternative means to, to look and alternative data to allow us to really f inform the policy and the decisions that need to be made with regard to uh, us, you know, sniff and uh, subacute care beds that are desperately needed. Uh, and you know, I I'm interested in seeing where the data can inform policy because this is a, you know, the 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 lack of beds isn't something that's going to improve even with the efforts uh, that you know the laudable efforts that we've seen. Um, you know, at Chinese Hospital and at, you know, the, the couple of other uh, places that we are looking for, um, you know, that, that's, you know, it's such a, uh, the, the environment for um, widening or expanding the beds that are needed doesn't exist in the present day and time. And so we need to look at alternative policy solutions. So what's the data? What's the methodology? What's the process that we need that is going to help us do that? Uh, is something that I would uh, hope that the department uh, can provide us with some directionality, because uh, otherwise it's really going to be status quo. And I hate to paint such a pessimistic picture, but it is the reality, and I think we need to face up to that reality. Thank you, Commissioner Guillermo. Vice President Green. Yes, well, I'd like to echo the thanks that other commissioners have voiced. This was a tremendous undertaking for all and an incredible amount of data. And I think it's impressive that you've been able to draw some conclusions given the disparate nature of the information you had to work with. If I'm understanding this correctly, one of the goals here is really to better understand what the capacity need is in San Francisco. Because I think that does inform policy, but it also informs what's needed in terms of financial support. 
uh, to be able to make these beds available and financially feasible. So, and I was also impressed as I as I um, looked at the data. I maybe I was wrong, but it seemed the Chinese had a very uh, a lot of success with in-county transfers, whereas Kaiser did not. And so I'm wondering if there's any any information that would help us understand. And as everyone has said, the idea that they you would be opening both SNP beds and subacute beds as Chinese means a great deal to everyone in San Francisco. So you know that's quite laudable. But I'm wondering if it, at the end of this, even with the data limitations you have, would you be able to come out and say, you know, as we look at it, given the aging population and so forth, these are the amount of SNF beds, and this is what we really need in terms of subacute beds in San Francisco. And then parenthetically, I know that there was a pro forma that you mentioned was done for subacute. And whether you have any projections of, of what the financial feasibility will be to make sure that we have the number of beds from both a SNF perspective and a subacute perspective that we, we really need um, to meet the need of San Franciscans. Uh, I don't know if you have any early information about the financial feasibility or, or you know, whether, in fact, it, it isn't accomplishable because there's just not uh, the structure for, from, you know, government payers to be able to accomplish this. Um, thank you. Sorry. Thank you for the question. Um, let me respond to a, a couple of things. Um, so in terms of the Chinese hospital and, the, and Kaiser's um, hospital, I just I do want to note that Chinese hospital did offer the in-county transfer information because they didn't have a method of determining patients who are qualifying for skilled nursing care uh, but are not transferred out of, con out of county. And so they, they offered their in-county um, skilled nursing transfers. And it really, it, it did provide a lot of, I think, important information. We saw that actually a lot of San Francisco residents are going to in-county facilities. Um, Kaiser, because it was not required, we didn't ask for it. Um, they didn't provide their in-county transfers, and so I don't I don't know that information about what you know success they had for for in counties necessarily. Um, and then they use their referral data systems for that uh, the population who qualified for SNF or subacute level of care, but were not um, were not transferred. And so uh, you know, really going back to when I was first reviewing Chinese hospitals data seeing the in-county discharges was really enlightening. So I do hope that, you know, moving forward, if we are able to get that information, that we'll, we'll know a lot more about the population. So, um, you know, and speaking to Commissioner Guillermo's comment, I, I do hope that this provides more information for us so that we can draw more conclusions. Um, and then regarding the financial feasibility, um, I'm going to ask Kelly, do you want to speak to that at all? Or we don't, the performa. The pro, so the performa, when, when we did the performa, was actually to try and figure out what the sub, what a supplemental cost to keep a subacute unit would be viable. We did the case mix of some of the patients would be um, needing high subacute, some would um, be pair mix of Medicare Medical, some are straight Medical. So that was sort of the case mix performa cost on that. Um, Post-acute care collaborative sort of started to touch on this uh, population of SNF only people who really just need to go to a general SNF. Um, and at the time, I think one of the things that makes it hard to project out what is the projected need for the city for SNF, SNF subacute particular or SNF and subacute within that um, is that it puts the puts the focus on that SNF is where people will end up going. And I think that what it what it um, 
neglects to contemplate is that folks could be maintained at home if they had right access to services and supports in order to stay at home. And that is one of the goals of CalAIM actually is act to, to make um, home-based services more accessible so that people don't have to leave their home because they'll get more services and supports to stay there. Um, so we can do a, a generalized look and to see how many people we project could um, need a SNF bed. But the hope would be that um, as CalAIM uh, starts to implement and roll out, that we're going to see that the need for SNF will go down because people will be staying home. Um, so it might be a, a helpful thing for us to contemplate doing a um, point-in-time survey of where SNF needs are um, maybe in a year or 18 months, two years after CalAIM has had a chance to get going. And then it might be a more realistic number of projecting out what the need would be at the time. Um, it's why the post-acute clerical uh, post-acute care collaborative report recommended that we actually start by trying to enhance um, the services and supports for uh, lower levels of care, increase residential care for um, uh, assisted living and adults so that um, they could actually stay in community in a lesser uh, lower level of care. Um, and that's sort of where that um, mental health SF is sort of stepping in and helping address that population and trying to expand that level of care beds before we really move to highest levels of care. That is a really important answer. I really appreciate that. And I think, as Commissioner Chow said, when you do report back to us, it would be fascinating to know what kind of progress can be made with in-home care. It would obviously solve so many problems we face with bed availability. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you, Vice President Green. I just have two questions. As you can tell, the Commission really geeks out on a good, robust data conversation. So thank you for that. Um, first of all, uh, with regard to the ordinance, um, you know, this is just the second, the first two years of reporting. Did the ordinance contemplate any kind of ramping up or grace period or even penalty when it comes to not providing the requested data? Um, I don't believe so. Okay. When, at least it's not included in the ordinance language. Okay. So. Okay. And then my second question is, um, you know, the demographic data that you are collecting, is there anything to date you've been able to glean to that? Are there certain groups or demographics that might be overrepresented or underrepresented in out-of-county transfers or anything else that may be of interest? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Thank you for the question. Um, again, <laughs> the thing is about only having the out-of-county um, data and information um, is really, you know, making any... Uh, comparisons is quite challenging because I am missing an entire other population of people who are refer or are being referred or transferred for skilled nursing or subacute care. Um, and so that's why the findings this time really focused on that out of county patient population because um, I just don't feel comfortable making uh, you know comparisons or uh, findings about the general patient population who are qualifying for skilled nursing care or being transferred without understanding that um, you know, in county transfers. Um, and, you know, similarly, another thing is, um, while the, the presentation did today focus just on, you know, total, the, the data was requested by San Francisco resident versus non-resident. And, you know, I can say that when comparing the San Francisco resident population to the non-resident population, um, you know, there are, it, it's a much more like racially and ethnically diverse population. But again, but that in San Francisco, and so um, of San Francisco residents, and so again, I'm, I'm really kind of hoping for that in-county population, um, so that I can kind of, you know, noodle on other findings um, to see where, where there's additional information. And that'll be really important information to have. So, thank you for thinking about that in advance and in, in of getting new uh, tranches of data. So, yeah. thank you. Other 
Any other questions or comments, commissioners? All right. Thank you so much. Oh, so uh, sorry, uh, Director Colfax. Thank you, uh, Commissioner President Bernal. And I just really wanted to thank the team for their work on this. I think as you saw that uh, going through this data was really challenging. Working mm -hmm. with with many stakeholders um, uh, required a lot of persistence and per persistence. Um, and uh, just with this ordinance, uh, just to remind the commission, especially linking our my prior point about um, our current budget situation, this ordinance came unfunded to the department. So this was um, quite candidly added work uh, to, to the policy team. Um, so just want to thank them for, uh, again, uh, moving this, this very important piece of work forward. Also wanted to acknowledge and thank uh, Chinese Hospital and Chinese Hospital leadership for their partnership uh, during this with this issue. Obviously, through COVID, um, we we we, we that strengthened our partnership in ways that were unprecedented. And just want to um, uh, emphasize that from the SNF to the subacute, um, from COVID now to Laguna Honda, uh, that partnership continues to strengthen and uh, and look forward to, to continued engagement. Thank you. Thank you, Director Colfax. We all know the importance of community partnerships, and this has been an especially effective one during this time. So thank you. Um, all right. And, and Commissioner, if you recall, there was one. I, thank there, you. There, there was one hand that went up right when we called public comment uh, to be ended. And so um, Commissioner Bernal stated that it would be OK to go to that and just let that one person speak. Um, so um, Jeanette, please unmute that person. Great. And caller, please let us know that you're there. Oh, hi, this is uh, Teresa Palmer. Great. Was You've got three minutes, Dr. Yeah, Palmer. Thanks a lot. Yeah. I just, one of the things I found about the report uh, confusing um, out of county is it's illegal to have a bed that's both a subacute bed and a skilled nursing bed. And subacute beds are best in, in the hospital, in a hospital base, because if a subacute patient gets sick, they're so complicated, they have to go straight to the um, intensive care unit. And so um, the grocery facility is not a, a, a good place to have subacute beds. And I didn't, uh, I wasn't quite sure of the total number of beds that, that are available, because I heard 23 and then someone else said 30 more. And it sounds like we need at least 40 beds in San Francisco. It looks like there's a minimum of 40 subacute transfers a year. Just rough, looking rough, looking at what the health department has said before and looking at um, what this uh, tally says. The other thing is I'm um, really sorry that CPMC is not doing its share. They have the same medical records as everyone else. They have EPIC they can do their bit. Not only did they shut down lots of subacute and nursing home beds, now they're not cooperating with the tally. And I, I find that um, very sad. Um, and I also think this does demonstrate the huge human cost of not having enough nursing home beds in town and that if Laguna Honda has to cut beds, it's gonna be even worse. And this is additional, uh, reason to succeed in getting a waiver from the federal government to not cut those 120 beds. It's a risk to human life to send someone far away and usually to lower quality nursing homes where their family can't monitor them. Thank you so much. Okay, please mute. Okay, great. That's all done. Secretary Moritz, do we need to skip this item because uh, because the chair of our uh, 
ZF, ZSFG, JCC had to step out for a moment? Oh, no, I'm sorry. So um, the uh, revised agenda in front of you is the, the presentation for the health services and permanent supportive housing is next. Oh, great. Remember, sorry, I, I apologize I uh, that I sent you all. I, I included the wrong listed order in the your packet, but I gave you the new copy. Okay, I don't, I, I don't have the revised ones. So if you could just guide us along. The next item then is... The is... Uh, health services and permanent supportive housing presentation. Great. Thank you. Alyssa, please, uh, please bring up the presentation. Good evening. My name is Dara Papo. I'm the DPH Director of Whole Person Integrated Care. We are a section of ambulatory care. Can you hear me okay? Yes, but get really close just, so that, okay. just because the microphone's bad, not you. Perfect. Okay, thank you. And it is an honor to be here tonight. I am going to talk with you about health services in permanent supportive housing. If we can go to the next slide, please. We're going to talk about four different programs and ways in which DPH partners with the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing, HSH, to provide health and wellness services and support housing retention for individuals living in permanent supportive housing. We're going to talk about the FACS program, FACS with the PH, the Permanent Housing Advanced Clinical Services, our site-based nursing in PSH, supportive housing services provided through behavioral health or funding for, and some additional programs. If we can go to the next slide, please. Uh, the FACS program, again, Permanent Housing Advanced Clinical Services, was really launched out of conversations between DPH, HSH, and permanent supportive housing providers about ways to support PSH tenants who did not have health services available in their buildings. And as we talk further about sort of the, the limits of health services, there's about 150 buildings providing permanent housing in San Francisco, about 10,000 tenants, and really only about nine of those buildings right now currently have nursing, nurse services included in their buildings. And so there really was a large need that had been identified. And out of those conversations, there was a proposal that we develop a mobile team to provide both health and behavioral health services in permanent supportive housing. This was brought to um, the Our City, Our Home Committee, and the program has been funded by Prop C. It is run not just as, a, it wasn't just a collaboration in planning, the program is actually run in coordination between whole person integrated care and behavioral health services in conjunction with HSH. So it definitely brings the partnership into programming. The services have been in place for about a year. We started with a pilot of, 22 bu of 10 buildings scaled to 23 and are currently providing services in 69 buildings, which is about half of the PSH portfolio and are currently working to scale in order to serve all of the PSH buildings. The goals of the program are threefold, and we talk about facts actually sort of being, being a triangle, where the base of it, the bulk of services, are really consultation and coaching for the on-site permanent supportive housing services staff, which has been a population that is really primary to working with individuals, but which doesn't have a lot of access to information in somebody's health record system. There's also sort of in, in the middle of our facts triangle, short-term 
on-site support services to help people stabilize and connect to resources in the community. And at sort of the tip of the triangle are individuals that receive ongoing in-home services, either through our medical providers or through our behavioral health team. And again, the goal is to direct people to community resources, but sometimes people need a period of receiving services before they can make that connection. If we can go to the next slide, please. Um, I find that sort of these stories are oftentimes the best way to sort of get a flavor of a program. And so we have two stories of individuals that have been served by the FACTS team. Um, the first one is a man who's in his 30s, who in his 30s had uncontrolled diabetes. This caused him to lose his vision in one eye, started to impact his vision in his other eye. He also had already had part of one of his foot amputated, and he had pretty severe nerve damage in both of his feet. So his functioning was definitely impaired, and his diabetes were putting him at high risk of losing the vision in his remaining eye, additional amputations, and heart disease. He hadn't seen a primary care provider or an eye doctor for over a year. So he was really... Um, at risk for some pretty severe health issues. When the housing providers learned about the FACTS program, they identified him as, as one of their first referrals. In addition to his severe medical issues, he also experienced mental health and substance use issues. His room was failing the habitability inspections that occurred monthly, which was putting him at risk for eviction. Everyone could agree that this was not somebody that we wanted to see return to homelessness. So he had also had a caregiver that he had fired and was having a lot of conflicts and challenges obtaining another caregiver. So the FACTS team initially worked to help him connect with a culturally congruent caregiver, somebody that he felt more comfortable working with, um, reconnected him to primary care, helped him both with transportation and an escort, either making sure that his caregiver could take him or sometimes the FACTS team went with him as well, as well as working with his primary care provider to change his medication from something that he had to take daily, which was always sort of a challenge and hard for him to structurally do to a medication that he received by injection on a weekly basis. And the FACTS team actually, because we had medical staff, were administering the, the injection to him up until the point that his caregiver was trained and able to give him the injections himself. So that was one way that we helped bridge care. They also worked with the housing staff and his caregiver to understand the requirements for the monthly habitability inspections so that he was able to sort of get the work done for him to pass the inspections. As an outcome, this tenant's diabetes is now under control. His room is passing inspections. With a couple of blips, he's been able to maintain his relationship with his caregiver, and FACTS has closed out his case. Available if things get rocky again, but this is somebody that we're really able to connect to community resources. Sort of at the other end of the spectrum, if we can go to the next slide. We're gonna talk about a woman who's in her late 70s. She has chronic lung disease. She's been having some memory issues. 
She has high blood pressure and high cholesterol. She has arthritis, a history of bladder cancer, and she'd been losing a lot of weight. She was referred to facts because of concerns about her cognitive abilities, some memory issues, the fact that she was really frail, and she was at risk for eviction because she owed thousands of dollars of rent and had not paid rent for over three years. Due to the COVID eviction moratorium, eviction wasn't pursued, but there was a lot of concern that this woman could end up in her late 70s returning to homelessness. So the FACTS team connected her with resources, neuropsych, and coordinated an escort to both help her get to appointments and also to you know, address the follow-up. They coordinated screening for her bladder cancer. She had missed her past screening. Thankfully, she was still in remission, which was a huge relief. She was so anxious to have to go get that screening was one of the reasons she wasn't following through. They worked with her around a number of her basic needs, delousing, laundry, getting a new mattress. And one of the most important things for her was they connected her to a community day program, which provided transportation support for her and that she's been going two days a week. So she had some structure to her life, which actually really helped with some of her cognitive challenges. They connected her to a payee, so that she didn't have to manage her money and pay her rent directly. She's on a payment plan so that her back rent will be paid. And they also connected her to Meals on Wheels. Her weight loss was because she didn't have access to food and wasn't able to sort of navigate getting groceries, both the finances and the practicalness of this. So her payment plan is supporting her housing retention. Her caregivers helping make sure that her room passes habitability. She has food and she has some social activities and the FACTS team is staying connected to her and to her, her team as we continue to monitor to make sure that these connections stick. And while a lot of our work is both with individual clients, if we go to the next slide, the really the bulk of this is working with the service providers. What we know and what we've heard and what I myself have experienced before I came to the DPH, I worked in permanent supportive housing for a number of years, is that since the advent of coordinated entry in 2019, 2018, individuals coming into permanent supportive housing have had more acute medical, behavioral health, substance use issues. This is actually the goal of coordinated entry that individuals that need the most support uh, to function on-site support services are the people going into permanent supportive housing and that people who really just need short-term support or subsidy are able to get housing support in other areas. So in some ways, this is demonstrating coordinated entry is helping people with greater needs land in the right place. And also it's a workforce that doesn't have access to DPH's electronic health records. So they're really dependent on the individual tenant self-report about their health conditions. Do they have a doctor? Do they know if they have a doctor? As well as um, oftentimes feeling like it's hard for them to know how to navigate the health system, sometimes even where to begin. And so a lot of the work for FACTS is really 
to help identify when their connections to care provide support, consultation, and coaching to the on-site services team, as well as when they feel like they hit a wall connecting people to our system of care, that facts can help them either think through sort of problem solving or sometimes if one referral doesn't pan out, really work with them to identify what might be another ongoing resource. So the consultation for the housing providers is another resource that is ongoing. And if we want to turn to the next slide, please. Um, we have a service provider consultation story. This was a, a referral that was made because a tenant came to the service provider and this was a direct quote, said, I'm out of important medication, but I don't remember what it's called and I don't know if I have a doctor. This is a, a common scenario um, when people are really sort of unconnected to, to care and the service provider had recently learned about the fax team and said, this feels like a great referral. And so the fax team was able to identify the individual did have a primary care provider. So that was the first success and was really able to sit down with the housing case manager to provide coaching about both how to schedule an appointment, what might be the type of questions that they would want to ask with the client when they, when they took them to the appointment and how to sort of support the tenant around medication management. Housing providers don't hold meds or administrator meds, but there's a lot of work that they can do with reminders, with coaching for people to be able to help manage their own medication in independent living and stayed in contact. And we received a really, really lovely unsolicited email from the housing case manager that said, facts helped me know how to connect my tenant to services. They helped me identify questions to ask at the appointment that I wouldn't have thought of. It's like a huge burden has been lifted off my shoulders because I had no idea who to call to help my tenants obtain medical care. And this, this housing provider has made it one of her goals to now also talk to everyone that she works with in her building to see if they have connections to primary care. And if not, she now considers herself a champion who's training her colleagues on the process of how to navigate the process of connecting to care. So it really helped her feel like something that she wasn't even sure what to, how to start now that she feels like she's able to help her colleagues do likewise. So if we can go to the next slide. Um, there are three primary reasons why clients are referred to FACS. About 38 of 38% of the time is for primarily medical needs. About 30% of the time for behavioral or behavioral health needs. And about 20% of the time is kind of a mix of all of them. In calendar year 2023, so about three months, FACS has received 106 referrals. About a third were successfully resolved through consultation and coaching to CBO staff. And about two-thirds were assigned either for assessment, which could result in consultation or coaching, but was more than just a, here's a name and number, and or direct services being provided. And a lot of what the work that FACS does is looking up in the different health record systems, is somebody connected to care, 
screening, is this tenant eligible for CalAIM enhanced care management and helping them get enrolled if they're not already and maybe eligible? Working with the on-site staff to understand more about the individual and also to have that health housing staff make an introduction to our, our health team so it's not just a random person knocking on the door. I, I heard you have some health issues, how can I help? That we have a warm handoff. They meet with a tenant to identify their goals, and come up with a care plan, work through the coordination and direct services, and when the goals are met, really monitor for ongoing stabilization before closing the case. People can definitely be referred to facts multiple times, either for the same issue or for different issues. We are, on the next slide, in the process, again, being a new program of planning our metrics and outcomes for facts, including connections to routine primary care, behavior health services when warranted, non-medical services such as in-home health services, initiation of medication-assisted treatment or other addiction-related care. Our goal is that 90% of individuals who are eligible for health insurance are connected, as well as who are connected to enhanced care management services if they're eligible. And we're also working on some goals and metrics for monitoring chronic health issues such as diabetes, hypertension, and HIV. We're also in conversation with HSH about what our success metrics might be for the consultation and collaboration work that we're doing with the on-site health services providers. So on the next slide, we're gonna talk about, so FACTS is like a big mobile health team serving a large population. And our PSH site-based nurses has been around, program around for 20 or so years. Um, that provides on-site direct nursing care and care coordination for individuals living in permanent supportive housing. There's a lot of work that happens between DPH and HSH to make sure that tenants with the most medical acuity are housed in these buildings um, because this is a, a level of healthcare support that really exceeds what FACS can provide as a mobile team. Um, these are individuals sort of 0.4 FTE, to, you know, to 0.4 to full time working in the buildings. Um, and we now have nursing services in 11 buildings. Three new ones have been added in this past year. Eight are run by DPH, three by UCSF. In addition to the direct nursing services, there's a lot of work that's done for care coordination, a lot of work with medication adherence including directly providing things like long-acting injectables and um, triage and care coordination. And the health services both partner with FACS when there's reason for referral as well, and also works really closely with the on-site support services. On the next slide, we have a, a snippet of an example of an individual. And um, this is a man who's in his late 50s He'd been a resident for in his building for two years. He was not engaged with on-site services, just would not talk to them. The property management staff noticed that he was having some different behavior changes. He was wandering the hallways and the stairwells at night. He was entering into other tenants' rooms and he was urinating in shared spaces. 
He had a number of lease violations. He wouldn't ever meet with property management about them. And he was considered at risk for eviction. The nurse on site engaged the tenant through talking to the tenant, doing an assessment and doing a chart review. The nurse identified that the client was not connected to care and had a history of hepatitis C and actually had end-stage liver disease. The nurse assessed that this behavior and this confusion, where was his room, where was the bathroom, how did he get there, was possibly something that was a symptom of his liver disease and really talked to the property manager to say, please hold off on the eviction. We think this behavior might be due to an underlying medical issue. Let's see if we can get him some help. The property manager said, okay. And they linked this tenant to both primary care and specialty clinics. He was prescribed medication to sort of mitigate the confusion as part that he was experiencing from his liver disease. And the nurse worked with him really closely. Um, a lot of reminders, some incentives, um, knocking on the door with coffee, with medication um, to really continue taking his medication. His hepatitis C was treated. He was stabilized to manage his, his liver-related symptoms and his housing was considered safe. And due to his chronic end-stage liver failure, he did transition into sort of hospice care and was able with support to die at home, which was his request. So because we had this medical staff on site, they were really able to identify something that allowed him the dignity to not just improve his symptoms and his quality of life, but to be able to die at home. So we also have similar goals on the next slide for PSH nursing which is again, connections to care, primary care, specialty care, services like in-home health services, um, reducing unnecessary hospitalizations and emergency department visits, management of chronic health conditions, and like the last individual we talked about, supporting end-of-life care. If we go to the next slide, we have two funding streams that are overseen by behavioral health services that support permanent supportive housing. The first one funds on-site case management and crisis intervention services in HSH-funded buildings. And the second one is funding through state funding through the Mental Health Services Act that provides on-site support services in HSH-funded buildings focused on adults with a serious mental illness. And additionally, on the next slide, there are two more programs. There is the citywide roving team that provides services in about 28 PSH sites, primarily for individuals who are considered at risk for eviction. The FACTS team coordinates closely with them to not make sure that we're not duplicating services. And um, we also have a lot of work that is being led through the Office of um, care coordination and population behavior health around the overdose prevention work, also supported by whole person integrated care to make sure that individuals in permanent supportive housing have training resources around overdose prevention and follow-up, as well as connections to medication for addiction treatment, including in-home delivery of buprenorphine. So 
the collaboration that's occurring between DPH and HSH is definitely still a work in progress. We're continuing to learn and iterate and improve our services, but it's been really wonderful to see the ways that this collaboration has both improved the lives of some of the tenants in permanent supportive housing and also supported the on-site caregiver, the on-site health staff, on-site housing case managers who are really sort of the, the lifeblood of the buildings. So thank you. Please let me know if you have any questions. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for the excellent presentation. Uh, Secretary Moritz, do you have any public comment? Folks on the line, if you'd like to make public comment, um, please press star three. I don't see any hands right now. Let me make sure, check with Jeanette. Yes, no hands. I'm, I, I'd actually just like to start to say, um, the illustrations of the personal stories are so important for us to hear. It really helps us know what goes into the work, the challenges that exist, the, cha the, 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 you know, the needs that the, the people you serve have. You know, working in a constituent service uh, area myself, um, one of the biggest challenges is just helping somebody isolate the problem. People with multiple needs might not even know what's, what's, what's happening with them, how you know, a path to resolving some of the challenges they have. So the individual stories are just really helpful and particularly throwing in the story of the CBO partner as well was really great. So thank you for that. Um, and that's my comment and um, I'll uh, recognize Vice President Green. Yes, well, thank you. This was an inspirational presentation you gave, and it's so emblematic of what can be accomplished with collaboration among departments in the city. And I hope you're publishing some of this information. And, you know, I echo Commissioner Bernal that, that the stories are incredible. As I, I read the beginning of the vignettes, and I thought, what can they do to accomplish this? And then to see what you've done is really truly remarkable and I think it also speaks to the idea that you're bringing to the table everyone with a whole variety of different skill sets especially the cultural competency to address social determinants of people that also have severe underlying illness and I guess the question I had for you is do you have enough manpower and enough funding to continue this remarkable program because the, these examples are phenomenal really lucky to have the funding from Proposition C and currently we've staffed up with primarily the physical health services, health workers, nurses, nurse practitioners, um, you know, a part-time physician. What we're currently expanding is the behavioral health services. We had originally intended those to be provided by DPH staff and the PSH providers were really sort of like but hey, what about our workforce and how can we also sort of support our bench strength as our own agencies? And so a request for proposal is gonna go to really probably, you know, add on the behavioral health services and that I think we're anticipating will get going in the next year. That will really improve the coordination with the CBO partners. And I think we'll also, um, bolster our behavioral health capacity. So looking forward to coming back in another year and reporting on that. Thank you. Commissioner Gerardo. Well, you answered one of my questions with the uh, amount of staff, which I appreciate it because that was one of my concerns when you're expanding to 69 buildings uh, with PHACS. But my other question is on the city roving. Mm -hmm. um, and one and my question is how many have been served so far in this or in, 
that we'll provide at the 28 PSH sites if you know how many have been served or and with um, and how often will the roving team be at these 28 sites you may not have that data right now but I think we're always interested in how many people are served um, with with this so and I thank you as well for this this data it's it's wonderful thank you I'll make sure that we follow up with the information about citywide thank you Commissioner Christian thank you first of all uh, I echo the comments my colleagues have made so far and I just want to thank you for this incredible work and a great presentation of the work very clear uh, but I mean this is uh, an example an, an excellent example of success by meeting people literally where they are right and then once you do that meeting their basic needs keeping them housed and and getting them the treatment that they need behavioral treat, health treatment as well um, this is uh, an example of it's a different version of some of the work that uh, some of the other work that DPH has begun to do in the last year and in, in the last number of months about meeting people where they are on the street to get them off the street and get them as well as they can be so um, I mean this is obviously the path forward and, and, and the change that we a lot of the change that we want to see in our communities and I just want to thank you so much for it and um, it's, it's incredible and looking forward to further reports about uh, any funding issues you have and the funding that you're getting and how we can bring more resources to the work. So thank you so much. Thank you. This, this program is really a testament, I think, to the, the vision that's been set by DPH and HSH leadership that says that we're going to work together both across sections of DPH and not work in silos and that we're gonna to work together across departments. So it, it really is, I think, the vision that the Health Commission and the department leaderships have been setting that really allow the work of these initiatives to move forward. So, so and across thank, city thank departments well. too. It's yes. a, a very good innovation. Commissioner Chung. Thank you so much for um, your presentations and the stories. And again, you know, I'm like jumping into the chorus and you know and and really want to sing praises to the work that um, you all have been doing I know that this work has been going on forever actually this was one of my first jobs when I got hired mm -hmm. um, 20, over 20 years ago yes um, and to know that it continues to grow it's just makes my heart warm because um, yes you know like we definitely see a lot of the clients who just need that little bit of like outreach and you know and in connections and they thrive um, and so one question I have though is are they all in the same buildings you know like when you talk about permanent housing Got it. Um, no, we, we work at this point, we work with about half of the permanent supportive housing buildings that people can submit referrals from. So it's pretty common that people will have one or two clients at, at a number of buildings. Okay. All right. So, so that's even better. You know, like before they all have, they all like are staying in the same building, right? Like the Windsor Hotel. That's yeah. where yes. I worked. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Guillermo.
here uh, departments and also that prop c funding is putting being put to the use that was intended and again i think um uh, the public needs to hear uh, that, you know, or the voters need to hear that something that they've passed has really sort of led to this and the stories that, that are being told. Um, so if there's a way that we can uh, somehow disseminate this, I think it would be great and, and uh, maybe lead to uh, finding some of that staff that you're uh, either at the CBOs or at the department who might want to be part of uh, a program like this. I had one uh, quick question. You used the term culturally congruent. I was just wondering, I've not heard that before, so I'm just wondering if that's a new term or is, am I out of it? Or is it uh, a culturally competent, you know, sort yeah. of nuance? I don't know. Yeah. In, in that scenario, the individual was assigned a, a prime, you know, the in-home health services staff um, didn't speak English as their primary language, and this individual spoke English. And for him, that was a disconnect, I think. And so the staff were able to identify somebody that both spoke the same language and was of the same ethnicity, that the person felt that... Because when you have an in-home caregiver, that's the person who's in your home they're doing your laundry, they're bathing you. And for some people having somebody that they feel maybe that they can't necessarily relate to or of a different gender could be uncomfortable. And so that was one of the situations for this client. No, I get it. it, it yeah. It's, I guess, a new term of describing yeah. something that has um, been around for a while in terms of a need, but thank you. Commissioner Chow. Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, I. Uh, I got in on the last half of it, but I mean, it's an excellent uh, report also, as uh, my colleagues have noted. And and I think for the future, it'd be really nice to understand the staffing uh, dollars that you're talking about and, you know, the numbers of people that are in certain staff positions, uh, whether, you know, you have, have social workers or, or what, what the mix is. Uh, my question was, how, uh, and I might have missed this, how do people then get referred to you? Is it by the managers of these units or is it by uh, one of the other, and your slide about, uh, you know, the supporting housing program and so forth. So what's the mechanism somebody gets in and are taken care of by this wonderful team? That's a great question, thank you. Um, the on-site support services are the ones that can make referrals. We've set up an online portal for people to submit a referral. Um, and we've done a lot of work of the FACS team to let people know that this program is out there. Knowing about resources is sometimes half the challenges for case managers. And so we've done a number of presentations, both at large HSH um, related sort of housing provider meetings, as well as going to talk to individual agencies and individual agency staff meetings about this. So is there any self-referral? We have not yet set up a mechanism for self-referral at this point. Thank you. Well, is there some thought that you might be thinking of that? I mean, maybe somebody's really afraid of talking to the upper side or, or the manager of the apartment or whatever it is, but feels they have a need. So, Yeah, that's a great question. Um, at this point, the way, and again, we're still in the early initial iterations, is that the relationship with the on-site support services is really critical. They're the eyes of the ears of the building and really the ones that are gonna be helping follow up 
on recommendations. And so I think at this point, we really want to make sure that we're working on that capacity building for the housing providers, as well as their support for follow-up. So, but definitely something I'll, I'll bring back and make sure that we're continuing to talk about. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Director Colfax. Thank you, and I, I just wanted to acknowledge again some of the comments that have been made with regard to uh, the, the interagency uh, collaboration, and also that one of the things that I think, I hope the commission heard from the presentation, from the excellent presentation, is also making sure that there's a seamless integration of behavioral health care with physical health care. That is something that, as you know, the department uh, and our healthcare systems really struggle with. Um, and that is so important, especially uh, given the conditions that we're dealing with now with the, the uh, pandemic of, of overdose deaths. Uh, and that as we continue to work to make sure that people have the physical health care they need, that the behavioral health services are there and available as well. And of course, um, the other thing that is so key here is that this is allowing our other healthcare systems, our acute care systems, our emergency rooms to also work better because if you get care where you live, um, it's, 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 it's freeing up um, resources uh, for the people who do need to actually go to the emergency room and, 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 and get the care. So just wanted to highlight that and thank the team. Um, a lot of this was uh, envisioned in, 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 uh, before COVID and now it's, it's, it's being realized. And also I think a lot of the lessons learned from COVID including uh, the shelter in place hotels and that work really has contributed to uh, the scale up that you see here. So thank you. Thank you, Director Colfax, and thank you again for an excellent presentation. We look forward to, to seeing you back again with, with uh, more, uh, more great examples. Thank you so much for your time and support. Right. Okay, our next item is the consent calendar for this. Uh, am I handing this over to you, Commissioner Chow? Uh, uh, well, uh, no, I believe oh. it's uh, Commissioner Chung. Chung okay, sure. for the, yes, for the oh, finance sorry. and planning. Or first the report. Okay, the I was looking at this. There are two parts to the consent calendar. Yeah. So um, I will, um, the, finance and, uh, the finance and planning committee met before the commission meeting today and um, we um, reviewed 10 items on the contract report and, and also um, two new contracts and we're recommending um, the commission to um, approve them on the consent calendar. Um, another thing that we actually was discussing is because some of the sizes of these contracts, you know, it brought back a, a ongoing discussions that we have is, you know, like what's considered too big as an organization, you know, because like with all the mergers that happen, so some of these contracts end up being snowballing and getting bigger and bigger. Um, and so we're going to like trying to set some time to have that conversation again. Great. Thank you, Commissioner Chung. And then there's also another item on the consent calendar having to do with uh, they were recommended by the ZSFG JCC. And we can still take them all in one if yes, Commissioner Chow would like to uh, let us know what the remaining items on the consent calendar are. Uh, actually, these are again rules and regulations and standardized procedures that are to uh, meet uh, guidelines and uh, to bring them up to date and in compliance with uh, what the remainder of the staff is doing. So these are just updates and the uh, uh, Joint Conference Committee is recommending that they be approved. 
So aligned with the recommendations of the Finance and Planning Committee and the ZSFG Joint Conference Committee, do we have a motion to approve the consent calendar? Uh, I second. All right, any public comment? Uh, folks on the line, if you'd like to make public comment on this item, please press star three. I don't see hands right now, just confirming. All no right. hands. Comments or questions from the commissioners? Seeing none, all those in favor say aye. 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 Opposed? All right, approved, thank you. And our next item is Joint Conference Committee and other committee reports. For this, we'll go back to Commissioner Chow for an update on the ZSFG JCC meeting. Thank you. Uh, the ZSFG uh, JCC actually met right here on March 28th as our first hybrid meeting in, uh, of the committee. And, and uh, uh, key staff were present here and similar to uh, today's uh, meeting. Uh, the uh, committee reviewed the standard reports, our regulatory affairs report, uh, still waiting for a hospital uh, joint commission survey. The, the CEO report, uh, hiring and vacancy and the challenges that continue, uh, and some of the successes in uh, filling some of the surgical si uh, uh, positions, and the uh, medical staff report. The committee was also pleased to see a reduction in the diversion rate to uh, below their um, uh, target, uh, close to about 40% instead of uh, uh, the uh, escalating numbers uh, going up to 60. And there's still, of course, uh, work to be done by uh, the hospital and the uh, staff to uh, continue to bring that down. But they were uh, pleased with that. And there were also uh, a reduction in the uh, uh, people who left without being seen in the emergency room. So th those were all good news. Um, the committee then approved the policies which you just voted on today and uh, heard a presentation on the True North scorecards. Uh, of course, there's only a uh, less than a quarter at the moment of working together uh, on uh, achieving these goals, but it's clear that they are on the path of, uh, of improvement. And uh, in closed session, we approved the uh, credentials report and the PIPS minutes report. Thank you, Commissioner Chow. Any public comment on this item? There are no hands up. Commissioners, comments or questions? All right, our next item is other business. Is that right? Um, I just wanted to acknowledge that this past Friday uh, was International Transgender Visibility Day. We're so grateful for um, the rich and supportive environment we have in the Bay Area and also want to acknowledge uh, really the politically dangerous and threatening environment that we're in today uh, for the transgender community, particularly with um, rights being uh, coming under assault by state governments, particularly in the South. So um, wanted to acknowledge uh, that as well. Commissioners, anything else for other business? Or? I, I was just going to mention that the Chronicle uh, was able to uh, have a uh, open forum article on hepatitis B screening. Uh, uh, commending the uh, HEPI uh, programs, which uh, the city participated in along with the community, and uh, was hoping that uh, one day we would also get an update on uh, how we are meeting these uh, requirements. And, and HEPI now has become, uh, the reason for the article was that they uh, indicated that the, uh, uh, what is it, the uh, preventive committee of, of the nation, I forget the, the full name, are recommending that, in fact, a HEPI screening be done on all patients at least once. Uh, so uh, just trying to see if uh, we were keeping updated in our own uh, health uh, pl uh, programs. Thank you, Commissioner Chow. I know uh, Secretary Moritz will note that for a future meeting. Uh, Commissioner Chung. 
Um, thank, thank you, President Bernal, for bringing up the Transgender Day of Visibility. Um, it's, it's like you said, it's really alarming to see what's going on both here in in our country and also outside in, um, especially in Sub-Saharan Africa, um, that they're passing anti-LGBT laws that would um, require those who identified as LGBT to possibly facing like death sentence or a life sentence um, in prison. And, um, and for us, you know, like, yes, we should celebrate that we live in the Bay Area, but I'm not sure if everyone knows that we actually have been um, a, um, a clinic and also, you know, like a provider had received um, death threats and threatening phone calls ongoing to, to um, harass them here in San Francisco. Um, and it's um, one of the community clinic that serve the community. Um, so I think that, you know, that's something that we also have to look into since we also provide services to the community and to make sure that the staff are safe. Thank you, Commissioner Chong. Commissioners, anything else? Other business? Oh, Commissioner Christian. Thank you. Just building on what Commissioner Chung said, um, it, obviously these attacks are, you know, physical attacks but they're also psychological attacks and it's you know the the ways in which it uh undermines and degrades people's health uh mental health and which of course leads to other other problems and so uh i am thrilled to be back not sure what the um department and the commission have been doing um or thinking around the uh, highlighting this issue and working to protect as much as possible the uh, public health uh, at the mental health level. Uh, but I think it, uh, it's something I'd like to think about how we can engage uh, publicly and to support and bolster people's um, resilience and their health. Thank you, Commissioner Christian. And it is wonderful to have you back again. Commissioners, anything else for other business? If not, uh, we'll move on to our last item, which is uh, consideration of a motion to adjourn. So move. So is there a second? Second. Okay. Uh, all those in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? All right, we are adjourned. <laughs>